Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex- Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Hey everyone, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 2024 Santa Fe, available early 2024. Cool Zone Media. Hey everybody, Robert Evans here, and I wanted to let you know this is a compilation episode. So every episode of the week that just happened is here in one convenient and with somewhat less ads package for you to listen to in a long stretch if you want. Uh, If you've been listening to the episodes every day this week, there's going to be nothing new here for you, but you can make your own decisions. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here, a podcast about it happening here. And in the original cadence of this of this website uh, or website in the original cadence (laughs) of the show, that was a reference to a civil war, right? A new civil war. It could happen here. That's what season one was made a big splash. Now we kind of covered the dystopia beat in general. But today, we're getting back to our motherfucking roots because the state of Texas has recently declared a big old fuck you to the federal government, RE, having its National Guardsmen deploy razor wire at the border and stop Border Patrol people from, for example, performing rescues of people who are trapped in the water, drowning. It's a whole thing. At least three migrants have already died as a result of this fuckery by Texas Governor Greg Abbott. And now, like, I don't know, 20 states, something near to that have, there may be more uh, by the time Mm -hmm. you hear this, but something like 20 states have declared that they're in support of, of Governor Abbott's refusal to let the feds in and insistence that he's dealing with an invasion and must take on the border, Texas itself. Uh, And some of those states are now sending, or at least claim they're going to send national guardsmen. So 
when this all started happening, we all got a lot of messages. I got about a billion from people being like, is this it? Is this the civil war? <laughs> and obviously uh, a big chunk of that yeah. comes from right wing yeah. memes because they are all talking about like, yeah, let's do it. Let's have us a civil war. We're all going to start fighting over this. Some guy posted his handgun collection. Like we're ready. <laughs> Bunch of revolvers. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> stupid yeah. shit. It's stupid shit. But, you know, it's not unreasonable to be like, this seems like a massive constitutional crisis that's potentially in line with some of the crises that uh, precipitated the original Civil War. You've got a governor completely defying not now, not just, you know, the president and the federal government, but the Supreme Court uh, who ruled that you can't just have your fucking Texas goons stop a federal law enforcement agency from doing its job on the border. So, you know, how serious is this? And is this the kind of thing that's going to lead to uh, A24's new Civil War movie? (laughs) And my quick take on this is no, uh, probably not. I think what this is, is in fact uh, a governor stretching out his authority and testing how much he can get away with Uh, against the overall federal government because he and a lot of other conservative governors want to do things that are directly in contravention of the Civil Rights Act, uh, of the Bill of Rights, of of numerous federal protections for their citizens. And this is kind of a way of being like, well, if they won't fuck with us over this, then we can probably start imprisoning journalists and, you know, killing people that, uh, or at least imprisoning people that otherwise we would not be able to, right? Like this is a right-wing power grab and it's an attempt to see is the central government weak enough that we can get away with this stuff. I don't think they're all going to start shooting at each other. I don't think Greg Abbott is <laughs> wants to get in a shooting war with the federal <laughs> government um, <laughs> over a mostly ginned up. The dimensions of the crisis are ginned up and fake in terms of like what he is claiming it is. There is, in fact, a humanitarian crisis at our border, but that's not what his issue is. So that's my quick take. We're going to get into more of all of that. But James, you are our resident border correspondent, correspondent. And you have some very strong feelings on how all of this has been interpreted in the media. So I wanted to pull to you first, and then we'll we'll get to Mia, and we'll just kind of roundtable after that. I do. I uh, in a rare instance for me, I have strong feelings about the way this has been covered, and strong feelings about the coverage of the border, which I know is a thing I talk about all the time. But I am beyond frustrated with the way this has been covered. It's hugely irresponsible. And it's completely context-free. Like, there are people, as there always are with the border, and there always are with the right, who just tourist outside things that they understand and try and generate clicks by, like, geeing up the fear of a civil war. Um, Yes. I've seen dozens of people sharing uh, headlines about National Guard deployments that happened years ago. The National Guard have been deployed to our border for years. I see National Guard troops... Every day, I had a National Guard guy shoot yep. me and go, shoot at me, shout at me. A, uh, uh, a friend of ours hit. took one of their rifles. <laughs> yes, yes, a friend, of, a friend of ours did. The National Guard have been extremely uh, based in arming the uh, the Butterfly Center. <laughs> yeah, they, they, they're they there. There's a federal deployment. Texas also has a state deployment. These are different things. And in, other states have also sent National Guardsmen to the border before, by the correct, way. Correct. This, this is not the first time this has happened. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a federal deployment, and then there are state deployments. Uh, both of those are distinct things. Something to know about the state deployment that is missing in the context-free reporting that you're seeing is that these guys aren't getting any of their federal deployment benefits, so they won't be getting the TRICARE, they won't be getting the uh, the time towards their retirement, they won't be getting their GI Bill, etc. So, like, the uh, the Texas guys who are deployed on state orders are really 
uh, the, the National Guard are getting fucked by Greg Abbott. Like, uh, it, it's it's laughable that that like you know he, he's pretending that he cares about Texas while actively screwing over. And Robert and I have spoken to some of those Texas National Guard folks last time we were in Texas. Did not seem to be super motivated to be. No, there. they're the only military unit I've seen try to form a union because they're not yeah. in the federal. They're not in the federal <laughs> orders, so they can attempt to form a union. <laughs> get Billy Bragg down to the border. We got to <laughs> do this. <laughs> yeah, drop in. Let's get Billy Bragg. I'll get him going over the Rio Grande, and uh, we'll insert Billy Bragg in there. We'll fix it. Um, it has been the most dangerous deployment that they've had, including yes. deployments to Iraq. They, they have. Unfortunately, uh, a habit of drinking and driving, which is not yep. proven healthy for them. They also, there's a quirk of Texas law that means that they can't stop National Guard soldiers from bringing their own firearms. Yeah, which is great. Yep. Oh, yeah, no. and then, thus they can't stop them accidentally killing each other with their own firearms. Also, <sighs> a, yeah, it, it's good stuff. A TNG soldier did die trying to save a migrant from the river. Yes, he drowned. So, like, it, it has not like it, it. It is a very boring, but also quite dangerous deployment. That you know they have really high. They wrote a manifesto a couple of years ago about how bullshit their deployment was, <laughs> you know, which is which is really great stuff. And um, so, yeah, it, so much of this has been reported without any context, right? Like, I think genuinely a lot of the people reporting on this are not aware that there have been national. There are national guard here in California. Like I say, yeah. I see them all the time. They're not supposed to interdict migrants, but I see them doing surveillance and I see them guarding open air prisons in, in Hakumba almost every day. And I think that seems to have been missed by the majority of uh, of people covering this. Now, we should talk more about the open air prison part because I think there's a lot of people who seem to be getting the impression that the Biden administration is like actually substantively trying to do something to like help immigrants and like they're like yeah. this this fight is like between like pro and anti-immigration it's like no this is a fight between whether you think these people should be killed incredibly quickly by a combination of razor wire and rivers or whether you think they should starve to death yeah or die of dehydration walking through the desert yeah. or die of hypothermia walking through the mountains like i uh i think i've said something on the podcast before but i was helping a three-year-old girl who was hypothermic last week and like yeah. that is what joe biden is doing that is the joe biden policy being enacted by joe biden as joe biden wants it to be enacted or at very least yeah i'm sure his personal uh like complicity or even understanding is is relatively low given his understanding it seems of a lot of things but uh the biden administration's policy is to deter people by making crossing more difficult and more dangerous which de facto makes it more deadly what yeah. Abbott is doing with his razor wire and his floating fence is a version of the same thing. Like they are mm. not distinctly different. When everyone was up in arms about those three people drowning, that's a tragedy. Eight hundred and fifty people died crossing the border in twenty twenty two. That was a normal yeah. day. Like it, the the distinction is is maybe in degree, but really it's it's in aesthetic. Between, between Abbott and Biden on this. And it's just two dudes chest thumping each other trying to not look weak. There yes. is not an option in the US system which allows you to vote for the party that doesn't want migrants to die. Like, like the, both of the parties are completely in lockstep on that. And let's, uh, let's, let's be very clear about something. Part of why that is, is because an overwhelming number of Americans are indifferent or actively hostile to the survival of migrants. Yes. Like this is an inc it is incredibly unpopular in this country to think these people are human beings who deserve decent treatment and decent lives. This is a fight that the left has lost comprehensively. 
mostly in large part because the left has completely given up on it, which is why you've got fucking a lot of these Nazbol assholes saying shit like, you know, this is uh, we, we have uh, like like saying basically protectionist nativist kind of shit. These yeah, days, right. Because I think that like leftist media has also and, and to include, I guess, liberal media also has completely. Oh, yeah. Like being complicit in this, right? Like the amount of stories that you will read about migrants that don't talk to migrants in the next few weeks will will be a lot uh, if you care to read them, right? And that's because people don't want to come here. They're either afraid of coming here or they don't want to take the time. They don't have the language skills. There are people who have the language skills who don't don't get these jobs and there are people who don't have the language skills and who don't have the understanding of how the border on the ground works as opposed to immigration policy in D.C. works. And and you're going to see... A lot of people who don't live at the border, who don't come to the border, writing about the border. And uh, yeah, that's how we got here. And that's how we're getting to this. It's largely like a giant panic about a nothing burger. But um, it, yeah, it, it's the reporting has been and continues to be irresponsible. And that is in some degree complicit. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think this yep. is also the explanation for why there's a lot of people going like, why is Biden not like sending the troops? Why is Biden not cracking down? Because he doesn't fucking give a shit. It's the same policy. Yeah. He doesn't care. Right. Like there's not actually substantive disagreements except over like whether it should be like some like a really stupid political stunt over whether it should be like federal troops like on or like federal federal agents like on the border or whether it should be the razor wire. Like he doesn't care. Yeah. You know, and to be fair, I will say I don't think this is the start. This right here, I don't think is the start of a civil war. We may, if we have one, we may someday see this on like the list of factors contributing to in the years leading up to it. But I will say if we do ever have a shooting civil war, it will be something this dumb. That that I feel absolutely certain of. It will it will be a thing where no one involved really cares about the issue that starts it. It's just a dick measuring contest that goes too (laughs) far. I just don't think this is the dick measuring contest. But to be fair, it will be something this dumb. Don't worry, folks. Don't worry. If we do start shooting each other, it will be just as stupid as this. (laughs) Yeah. I do think that like I I think we're extremely likely to start a shooting civil war over this or, or in the next few years generally. I do think the chance of shooting migrants. context without a civil war is shooting specifically of migrants, especially in places where they're not safe, like open-air yes. detention centers, is going up. And yes. that scares the shit out of me, yeah. like uh, someone who spends a lot of his life there. And uh, I, I do think that the might... The, I mean, we saw in 2018, right? And, and we've covered this extensively, the Tree of Life shooting was in large part motivated by right-wing rhetoric about a caravan yep. of migrants. I was in Tijuana in 2018. I spent months of my life helping people down there. Uh, like anyone who's scared of those people uh, is paranoid, to say the least, right? They, they were mostly fine, wonderful, very friendly people. Um, I spent Christmas with them. But yeah, the 2018 Tree of Life shooting came from paranoia about the border. We're seeing that same paranoia from right-wing media and from liberal media now. And... I think that it, it would not be unreasonable to have that fear of, of individual acts of violence and terrorism along the border. Yeah, I, I think uh, one of the things we're going to have to do in the near future is get better at understanding kind of the media dimensions of of, of conflicts like this and, and what is an irresponsible way to respond to them. And yes. I think treating this like it is a civil war type deal is kind of feeding into the right's image of itself and their desire to treat this like they're revolutionaries 
Now that said, what yeah. is the right thing to do? Because like the uh, the what the Biden administration seems to be doing right now is largely kind of ignoring it. I think at some point they will probably try to nationalize the guard and we'll see what happens then. One thing that's kind of worth noting is that this has primarily gone viral on right wing media. I'm seeing yeah. very little of, of this on like mainstream centrist, uh, like liberal media sources. And I'm seeing little on this because like most of those sources don't really care about the border unless there's some way to like drum up fear against migrants. Like they, yeah. they'll do a caravan story, but this just this just simply doesn't sell. I think when it comes to like what is a, a responsible way to report on this, I, I think you have to start by centering what's actually happening to the migrants, yeah. what's what's being done to them, as opposed to focusing on this dick measuring, because that's the actual harm here. The harm here is not that uh, that Abbott has been mean to the border patrol. And it's not that Texas and these other states, these rebel states are raising an army to fight the federal government. It's that we're th there's this argument between the people in power in our country about like how bad should things be for people who are already desperate. And I, I think that's where you should center your focus. Also, I'm I. I I've just noticed this on my other screen. This is a bit off topic, but uh, you know that movie Rebel Moon by Zack Snyder? Oh God! Nope. There, there's an there's an ad for for the canned water company Liquid Death that just is showing a bunch of like Im imperial troops from that movie beating a man and then drinking Liquid Death water as they relax what? afterwards. And I, it's the most unhinged ad I've ever seen. What? It's like running aside a Vox article. I've uh, never seen anything like this before. It's just like, what the, wait a second, what? Uh, Zack Snyder, come on. You can't do this. Zack's, no. <sighs> that fucking guy. <laughs> uh, Jesus. Talking of advertising, buy some liquid death. We're back. Yeah, so I want to talk about grift because we talked about advertising a bit. I don't know if you guys have seen the number of like right wing uh, influencers. Okay, so I'm I'm looking at friend of the podcast Tim Pool's Twitter here. Oh, Tim, that, there is a guy who is excited to have a civil war where he will be murked immediately by one yeah. of his bodyguards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a man who's seen combat and, and uh, knows what it is to uh, hear rounds cracking off over your head. Okay, Tim Pool, I'm just going to quote here. I'll have to, ha, 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 etc. Fuck me, dude. And then safeandreadymeals.com. Uh, yeah. Pool is not the only one on the uh, bucket of food <laughs> grift, right? Alex Jones has been on this too. Oh yeah, a million years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a bit long time, uh, long time food storage guy, Alex Jones. A lot of these guys are like very clearly geeing up fears of civil war on the right so that they can sell people powder dried eggs. Like it, it's it, it's yeah. so transparent. Like they, it, it's in the same tweet. Yeah, Sobiec. Trump calls for all willing states to deploy National Guard to Texas border and start the deportations. And then there's a special partner offer for MyPatriotSupply.com. God. Which is <sighs> the way to fuel your bigotry, I guess. Guys, two, two things. First off, if you buy your storable food from some right-wing media grifters deal site, you will spend the apocalypse shitting yourself to death. 
Like, it's all horrible. If you are going to buy, if you are going to throw a bunch of money on store, if you are a sane and reasonable person who wants to store food, learn how to make your own jerky, learn how to can food. You can do it very cheaply. It is not expensive to can your own food if you know what you're doing. You can can stuff that is in season and get it really cheap from the grocery store. And you can pickle and and do other kinds of can pressure canning. It's really economical and it will last a long time. If you are going to spend a shitload of money on storable freeze-dried food, you're going to be spending a bunch of money anyway. Just go buy Mountain House. Buy Mountain House. It's the good stuff. It's tasty. As far as I know, no right-winger advertises on them, and it's it's actually pretty good food. Yeah, that's you what I keep in my car shit. for emergencies. You will not shit ever, yeah, yeah, ever yeah. again. Yeah, ever you may again. never poop again. Like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, but that out the, of your uh, belly. the fucking biscuits and gravy breakfast selection they have, oh. man. When you're alone in the mountains, that shit is fucking fire. Oh my god. Yeah, it is, that will. Uh. It is like a bung for the uh, digestive system. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just want to plug lentils.org, which I, just, I've checked. Just, it is a website about eating lentils. lentils. Yeah. 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 <laughs> lentils. Uh, <laughs> forever <laughs> yeah yeah it's, it's, find balance between the yin and the yang in your in your post-apocalypse life with mountain yeah. house and lentils.org that's <laughs> yeah. what i have for you today uh, you know what's not running on lentils guys unfortunately huh. this is not an ad pivot i've just i've done the old bait and switch it, it's this fucking convoy that's going to the border i want to talk about this a little yeah, bit yeah let's do that uh, like this is where i'm i'm really done with irresponsible reporting like being like, oh, no, January 6th, part two. Here's a link if you want to take part. Like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Uh, stop it. But I, I look, right-wing groups have tried to run convoys probably a dozen times since 2020, right? I think we can all think of a different convoy that's got stuck <laughs> under a bridge. Uh, when drove like, by my house and then basically didn't get any further than that. Yep, yep, they get lost, they disagree about yeah. directions. A, a uh, lot of what, what a lot of people are going to realize is that the Texas border is 12 hours from anywhere in Texas. When you yes. are in Dallas, <laughs> I believe this is accurate. When you are in Dallas, it is faster to drive to Chicago than it is to drive to the border. <laughs> you are it is so fucking far away from anything. You could cross Europe in the time it will take you to get down there. <laughs> yeah, I, I love the idea of a convoy of like uh, you know, like completely Q-pilled lunatics just like descending on the town of Martha. Yeah. Yeah, attempt, yeah. Attempt, attempt. <laughs> fucking passing marathon and going, where yeah. in the Christ are we? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> being like, uh, God, yeah. Like, it is a really good, really beautiful bike ride from Marfa to the border. There's some dirt roads you can take. Uh, oh, and Marfa, by the way, folks, if you're looking to go down to the border, very fun town. You'll have a mm-hmm. good time in Marfa. <laughs> yeah, do love a bit of Marfa, really. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not going to tell my Marfa story. I'll tell you guys when we're done. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, it, it is not link salacious. It's just I don't tell it. But yeah, Marfa is near the border. Lots of things are not. It is a very long way from. I guess Anywhere. like maybe yeah. people could fly to El Paso. That's near the border. Um, but yeah, it's this idea. So there's three convoys, right? One I think is supposed to go from Virginia Beach to Texas. <laughs> <laughs> Share. There's no way. Good luck, guys. <laughs> Enjoy spending seven thousand dollars in gas. Each. Yes, exactly. Right? Have they not looked at the cost of fuel? Yeah. You fucking idiots. Have, have fun, homies. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Another one is going from I think Las Cruces to Yuma, and the one is going from here at San Isidro to Yuma. 
Yes, Great. the drive from San Isidro to Yuma is boring AF. Uh-huh. But good luck, I guess. Like, good luck spending that California. Hopefully, they get pull off at some of the gas stations like east of San Diego, where it's still like six or seven dollars a gallon because you're <laughs> fucked if you need fuel there and you can't buy yeah. it from anyone else. Um, but yeah, the idea that people are going to spend all their money like driving across the country—it's also just very. Like there's the meme right of the like the old white guy wearing Oakley wraparound or fake Oakley wraparound sunglasses doing a selfie video in his car to rant about like ev- ev- anything and everything. But like I think it's very illustrative of how many of these people don't feel safe outside their vehicles and like need their activism to involve their uh, their F two fifty. Yeah, well, in in part because most of them are like like most Americans not in great shape, not physically imposing. So if you're sitting in an F-250, you feel big and powerful. Like, James, you and I both have trucks. One of the things about trucks that is nice is that being in a truck, you're elevated above the rest of the road, right? Oh, yeah. And that that gets to a lot of people's heads, especially if they have absolutely nothing else going on in their lives, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. which nobody participating in this fucking caravan does. So they yeah, this is the, like it, it, it's 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 their it's emotional support, right? They're, they're sitting in their truck. They've got their gun. They're not breathing hard because they have to, like, walk around the world. Um, and they they would desperately prefer that they can. That's where how their activism, that's how their participation in the second civil war will will uh, occur <laughs> yeah through the means of truck bunch of bunch of fucking wankers yeah so i do want to get into kind of like w- what we do feel is the actual threats of this again i think the danger here is you've got a lot of kind of fights going down about like how far can governments take their anti-trans legislation? How mean can they be to undocumented immigrants? Like how much violence can they deploy in deporting people? Um, What can they do to journalists? What can they do to people speaking out or engaging in protest without violating the, the, the bill of rights? You know, what can they do to marginalized communities without violating the civil rights act? I think this is, an attempt to set a precedent for ignoring federal control so that they can be crueler to large groups of people within their purview. And I think a lot of this is a reaction to this is kind of their, what if we lose this election, right? I think there is yeah. a fear and I don't necessarily think this fear is actually like borne out. I don't think the rights um, national hopes in terms of its ability to get elected again after Trump are as poor as people want them to be as I might want them to yeah. be. Yeah. But I think there is real fear among the right that if Trump doesn't win this, they're not going to win the presidency again, right? And I think part of what they're doing is setting up, all right, then we will just take over and take increasing autonomy in our red states, and we will effectively govern them very differently and and govern them in contravention of how the rest of the country and how the, the federal government, how the Supreme Court says that they can be governed, because we can't be cruel enough without that. And I think that is what they are stepping up to be able to do. If you're asking, you know, what, what do I think will be sort of like line crossings that could lead to to mass social violence in this country? One thing I don't think they're going to take that leap while a Democrat is in control of the federal government and the Defense Department. I think they will push for a violent crackdown on everything left of the far right if they win power again, uh, because they talk about that repeatedly, because they promised yeah. to do that. Yeah. And I think that if they lose, there's there's an off chance, I don't think this is likely, but it's not impossible, that 
protests and violence as acts of protest against Biden winning a second term could snowball into, uh, you know, something that resembles an insurgency. Not impossible. I don't think that's the likeliest outcome, but I don't see them starting to shoot at federal troops now while Biden is in the White House. For one thing, I feel like that's the thing that would really clinch it for Biden. (laughs) If the Texas National Guard starts trying to secede, well, you've made his reelection campaign easier, right? Because now none of the red states, like none of the states that secede, you can't also have an election where those states get to vote, right? Like that's that's just not (laughs) the way it works. Yeah. So I don't feel like that's the likeliest thing. I think this is, uh, yeah, I think I've made it clear what I think. And I think it's really clear that it's time for our second ad break. That's right. Hopefully it's an ad for the new Trans Pride Oreos. Have you guys seen those? Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. I've not seen those. What? Wait, Trans Fried Oreos? Yeah, well, uh, maybe it's just me. I was just reading a story earlier and I noticed- Trans fat or gender? No, no. They uh, they have like a blue and a pink- Trans flag Oreo. Oh, yeah, yeah. well, mm-hmm. okay. But the, <laughs> yeah. they have a bunch really of have a, pride Oreo. Wait, this is from two years ago. Hold on, this is oh, old. okay, okay, okay. I was about to say, either I way, I don't put really a, have a, I just put a link in there this. to Woke Woke Biscuit. That's good. I, I have I have no opinion on, on this. I, I guess <laughs> it's good Oreos aren't bigoted. Yeah. Well, d- don't said. buy these. Give your money to me instead. <laughs> yeah, I don't think it really matters either. <laughs> Ah, we're back. You know, one thing I think about, like, part of why this is going viral, and I think part of what's an issue about this with the way it's being talked about on the left, but also, you know, the way the, the way it's marketable to the right, is that the thing about this conversation is that it looks like a civil war, but it, it looks like it, it's, it's, it's exactly perfectly engineered to look like the lead of Civil War One. And that is incredibly misleading. It's 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 basically it's like a marketing thing, right? Because like yeah, you know, and this is something we've talked about on this show for like literally since day one is that like a civil war in the United States is not going to look like a bunch of states like form an alliance and then all and they're fighting all of the other states. Like it's not it's not going to look like yeah. that. It's going to look closer to Syria than it is going to look like like the 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 first American yeah. civil war. But people haven't shaken. The, the like the sort of like brain worms of a civil war is like 16 yeah. states fight 16 states even though every you, single civil war that we've had like in the intervening like 100 like 200 years has not been that and here's here's how wrong here's how people are comprehensively wrong about this right on the left side you have LMAO, you guys are going to fight the federal government with your AR-15s. They got bombs and planes. And like, (laughs) well, we've seen how well our bombs and planes work against insurgencies. We're not good at winning those. If there were a real insurgency, and there's certainly ingredients to it, it would actually be a problem for the U.S. However, that does not look like 16 states declaring themselves seceded and going to, because that's a conventional war. And you know what happened if Greg Abbott started a conventional war against the U.S.? Greg Abbott doesn't have a fucking bunker. Right. Yeah. Like we could we could, he could be he could be blown up. He is, again, nothing against being in a wheelchair. But this is not a man who is capable of like living <laughs> underground and hiding from federal bombers. Like that's yeah. just not the kind of conflict that you need to be concerned about. Yeah, this this man does not have the bin Laden dog in him. He just no, does not. No, he sure he sure doesn't. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, no. He uh, the idea of Greg Abbott taking to a cave system in uh, <laughs> doing a Torah Bora yeah, at the border yeah. of Texas. He's hanging yeah. out in fucking yeah, <laughs> just, just giggling. fucking Big Bend or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, Torah Boraing Big Bend. Jesus yeah. Christ! Well, yeah, God, it, it will be outstanding. We would love to see it. Yeah, you know, but yeah, unfortunately, but, like, grainy photos of Greg Abbott and like the mountains of Southern Texas shaking hands with Mexican revolutionaries. <laughs> as they smuggle <laughs> rifles to him. <laughs> rifles that they also got from the United States. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That is what we call the circle of life. Oh, uh, God. Yeah, God, we can, we can dream, but mm-hmm. it, it does seem unfortunately unlikely. Yeah. It, it would be very funny uh, yeah. to see a, a SEAL team go after Greg Abbott. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> SEAL team fighting the Texas Rangers. Oh, if only. <laughs> if <Yeah>. only. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Just a bunch of dudes, each with a revolver, because they thought yeah. it looked cool until the very first time someone was shooting back at them. Yeah, it's it's a real like who has who is on the most HGH competition. <laughs> <laughs> whoever whoever can stop the steroids from flooding in is going to win. That's the spice in this particular conflict. Yeah, we would love to see. <laughs> Joe it. Rogan's the Baron Harkonnen of making sure everybody <laughs> spec ops guys have enough gear. <laughs> Floating above a fucking table. <laughs> oh, Great. Yeah. It, it would be wonderful uh, in, in some senses, but yeah, I don't mm-hmm. think we're going to see a, uh, a shooting world award. It will be interesting to see how, like, Biden has screwed the pooch in terms of, like, his media management of this, I would say. Yeah. And it will be interesting to see uh, how hard he goes in response, like, or if, if he goes yeah. hard toward in response. I, th- I think the smart answer would be nationalize the guard. If there's things that you can actually prosecute people over, prosecute them and continue to not deal with it in the media. Like the, his instinct isn't bad in terms of not wanting to feed in directly to the right wing outrage loop, but you still have to you still have to go after them for this, right? And it's the kind of thing it's probably like too much to hope for any real action being taken. But but I would say that's probably the smarter option, right? Not to say anything of like what the most moral thing to do is, but the smart option is don't feed into the fundraising loop because oh, we should probably get in on that. This yeah. is all a fundraising thing, right? In addition right. to them testing yeah. the waters, that's the biggest dimension of this is, and that's why we talked earlier, all of these guys, Tim Pool and Jack Posobiec, and I'm sure the Daily Wire guys that are on it now are like advertising their storable foods companies and shit. The point of all this, all right wing messaging, all far right messaging starts as a grift. It all starts with a product to sell. That's, by the way, how guns became so enmeshed with the far right, right? A lot of gun companies yeah. realize that like Americans only need so many guns for like reasonable self-defense and hunting and even even recreational purposes. There's only so many guns a man could shoot at a time, but you can really (laughs) get people to stockpile shit like crazy if you convince them they're like preparing to be guerrilla fighters in a in a future civil war. And so. And a lot of these like gun tuber influencers, that's kind of where they increasingly went because that's where the money was. And so this becomes more and more of a part of right wing politics because a lot of people on the right have a lot of money to be made in in messaging this kind of stuff and selling this kind of stuff. The same thing is yeah. true with the Civil War shit. It, it's true with these like fears that the government, you know, we can sell you storable food. We can sell you fucking bunkers. All of this stuff comes out of some sort of financial grift. And the biggest thing that most of the people involved in this are hoping for, fucking Jack Posobiec, 
doesn't want to be fucking hiding underground, getting bombed by the U.S. <laughs> Air Force. Jack Posobiec wants to make another million dollars off of affiliate sales of bullshit, yeah. right? Yeah, of that's shit. what. And and a lot of these people, these guys doing this caravans to the borders, they're not planning on spending their own money on gas. They're hoping that they can crowdfund a shitload of money. And I'm yeah. sure one of them will steal all of it and run away, right? That's what <laughs> usually happens with this kind of shit. Yeah. But that's what they're all hoping to do. And so that's kind of the over, if you want to actually hurt them, if you're looking at where do we, how do we draw a strategic victory out of this? Find a way to damage their ability to profit off of this shit. And I do think part of it is not making this as big a story as it otherwise might be. But that's not simply enough because the right is large enough that just through their media hyping this up, they can make a decent amount of money off this stuff. So more complex solutions are needed. Yeah, I do think we should probably discuss like the potential of Abbott using this in a personal or like a later presidential run, right? Like yeah. he's in New Delhi at the moment. Have you seen this? He sure this? is. He's, he's, yeah. he's in New Delhi hanging out with everybody's favorite pseudo dictator of India, Modi. Yeah, like Abbott trying to build this kind of uh, like, like electoral alliance and international alliance for uh, like fascist, like Wolfenstein America is, uh, is I think, like it's concerning because like Trump has a lot of baggage and like I think obviously he has a great degree of personal support as we're seeing in the primaries, but uh, if they don't make, if they don't stick the landing with Trump, I think Abbott is waiting in the wings to, uh, to make uh, their perhaps a more competent fascist than Trump and make an attempt at running for the presidency. Not good. Anything else to say? Fuck all of them. Yeah, that yeah, too. Sure. But <laughs> yeah. Okay, so the other thing that you actually can do about this is that look, th- this bullshit, all of this stuff is going to continue until there's actually some kind of sustained attack by the left on, like, politically on the border regime. Right. That was a thing that when I when I was like, you know, when I was like, like coming up like 2016, 2017, 2018, we were doing right. There was Occupy ICE. There was like there were mass demonstrations. There was like critical pressure being applied and we didn't go far enough. Part of the reason we didn't go far enough is a lot of people fucking a lot of very optimistic political groups, like including like PSL, et cetera, et cetera, like hijacked a lot of these things and pulled people off of occupations. But, you know, there was actually there were there have been periods in my lifetime, like not that long ago, where there was actually forward progress being made about this shit to the point where like even the, where like the Democrats were trying to co-opt it. And yeah. it doesn't fucking have to be like this. Like it, we don't we don't have to have hundreds of people fucking dying at the border every year. We don't have to have people in open air fucking prisons. It doesn't have to be like this. We can fight them and we can win. But it requires actually like it requires actually going and fighting. And, you know, you have you have to act, you have to actually be willing to do this. You have to be willing to commit to the organizing. But if we don't, if we just keep leaving all of this shit to like just the literal howling fascists and then Biden, who is like it like on on the border doing the same thing, but not being but not like howling about it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like this, 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 this country is going to go into fucking oblivion and we are we are going like you are you are going to see in your lifetime the U.S. government shooting people on the border. Like with machine guns, right? If you if we don't yeah. stop this fucking now, that is that is what you are going to live to see. And it does not we don't we don't have to we don't have to live in that world, but you have to act now. Yeah, I think that's a, a great like it is also within our power to like 
there is not a, a voting option, but there is a, always a mutual aid option at the border. And I, I know I bang on about this, but like if you are within range of the border, you can go and help. If you're not, there are migrant communities in your city, in your town, who need your help. And like the way we get through to our boomer uncles and and, and Facebook aunts and stuff is is by showing them that migrants are people with stories who are just the same as you and they just want a chance to raise their kids somewhere where they're not going to get fucking killed by a car bomb and the the more human interactions more people can have with migrants and the more stories we can tell that center migrants as people not as numbers or a tsunami or any of this dehumanizing rhetoric like the the more likely we are to take the teeth out of this um and that's something that all of yeah. us can do yes all right. So that's a good thing to end on. And obviously, uh, buy our storable foods. <laughs> Go to pissingmypantsdriedfoods.net and use promo code Robert Evans says the apocalypse is coming. It's a very long promo code, but you will get actually it increases the price by 15%. But please do it. We get more anyway. Money. Yeah, well, we get more money. That's going to be it for us here. And it could happen here until next time. I don't know. Go to sleep with dreams of a JDAM taking out Greg Abbott <laughs> right, in the, right in the Austin <laughs> Capitol building. Just bam, baby. Uh, won't happen, but it is a funny thing to think about. <laughs> What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex
National Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Welcome to Dick It Happened Here, a podcast that is in in no small part about the in- increasing and escalating series of anti-trans laws being passed around the country. Uh, it's another one of those episodes. Things are getting worse. Things are also getting weird. And with me to talk about worse and weird is Kai and Lee from Health Liberation Now. Uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to talk to you both because, okay, very, very odd stuff has been happening. So the main reason I, have, I wanted to have you two on is to talk about the stuff that's been happening in Ohio. So for, for people who are unaware, Ohio's legislature has been trying to pass a very draconian ban on all gender affirming care for minors. The state's Republican governor vetoed the bill. And this was for about one day. There was a lot of sort of like liberal cheering about like, ah, compassionate Republicans, blah, 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 blah. And then Immediately after that, like 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 the next day, when all of all of us we haven't even like, we hadn't even really gotten into the wait. Hold on, he's going to do something else. Uh, the thing that Dewine did is in is you know, and this is this is being framed as like an attempt to stave off the veto, which hasn't worked so far. But he immediately implemented a bunch of rules that say that in order to get gender affirming care, and this is true of both minors and adults, which makes it in a lot of ways more draconian than the actual bill it's quote-unquote supposed to be preventing, like, getting passed. If you want to get gender-affirming care, you need recommendations from a psychiatrist, an endocrinologist, and a bioethicist, and also all gender-affirming care in the state has to be reported to the government? And there And there's, yes. like, mm-hmm. other stuff, too. <laughs> so, this is, uh, the, the, the technical term for this is, this is extremely bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. To put it mildly. Yeah. And he, I mean, he also signed uh, an executive order just banning surgery for everyone under 18, too. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, also, I think I believe it was like everyone under 21 also had to go through uh, six months of counseling as well. Yes. Um, yeah. So, yeah. At least six months of counseling. Yeah. There's, there's no upper cap. Mm-hmm. And like a yeah. lot of this was DeWine and, and his spokespeople have ended up like justifying a lot of this, like trying to use language from clinicians uh, working at clinics in, in Ohio that see trans youth and be like, well, you know, they're taking this comprehensive multidisciplinary approach and most of the people they see like get counseling instead of medical transition. So they're actually like using <laughs> a lot of the testimony uh, against the ban to try to justify these rules and regulations. And I don't think they're acting in good faith because when you actually like look at the details, (laughs) you're like, well, this would basically make it almost impossible for anyone at any age to transition. But it's like, you know, it's a very sneaky, smart move, right? Like being like, oh, look, we're we're trying to find a compromise. We're trying to make sure everyone gets good health care. And, you know, unfortunately, sometimes liberals and liberal media will just kind of eat that up Mm -hmm. without really looking at the details. Yeah, and, and one of the things that's happening here, too, is that so so the U.S., where in places where there's pretty good access to gender-affirming health care, it works off of something called a f- informed consent. And informed consent is, like, 
Okay, so you go there, they tell you what is going to happen, and you talk you talk to like a nurse or a doctor, and then once you know the like what you're actually getting into, you say yes or no if you want to do something, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, this is a this is a pretty good system. It still can be really annoying to navigate because of insurance stuff and you know like mm-hmm. there's there's definitely problems with it but it's a it's a much better system than exists in a lot of places and you know i, I think there have been two sets of comparisons about what these restrictions look like and we're going to get to the comparisons to uh tarp restrictions on abortion in a second but i want to talk about another thing that these restrictions strike me as very similar to which is the british system and the way the british system works mm-hmm. is you get put on a wait list and then you die or you go to Armenia. <laughs> like those are those are your options, right? Or or you're really wealthy and you can you can bypass the public healthcare system and go to the private healthcare system. But you know, like I hope, like I I I hope you were are like the heir to a mansion before you start that process, or you're in serious trouble. The thing about the British system is there's all of these paths of interlocking experts you have to go through, and every sing- you have to get signatures from every single one of them, and. What this means is you have this enormous sort of interminable British gender bureaucracy whose only job and only the only thing they want to do is stop you from getting health care. There, there's a very, very good um, philosophy tube episode about this, about what it's actually like to be in that system. And it's terrible. And this is a this is what the, the kinds of things that are being proposed here are in a lot of they're not. It's not exactly the same as the British system, but it's it's bringing it much closer to that system where it's basically impossible to get healthcare. And and the thing about the British system and about these restrictions where, you know, you, you have to have like a bioethicist and a psychiatrist and endocrinologist, and you have to like do all, you have to like jump through all of these hoops is that at every single point in the process, there is another gender bureaucrat who can just by themselves decide that they're just doing a, a trans healthcare ban. And, you know, every, every individual person you put into the process is another person who can just say no. Mm-hmm. And that's how the British mm-hmm. system works, is that someone in the yeah. process just says no, and you die in a wait list. Yeah, I mean, we we know trans people in Britain and in other European countries where they have like a lot of gatekeeping. And, you know, all of them have warned us, like, you do not want this coming to the U.S. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, reminding us like all the time, like how much easier a lot of U.S. trans people have it in terms of accessing healthcare and just like. Yeah, I mean, it, everything I've heard about like the UK healthcare system sounds like nightmarish. <laughs> People asking invasive questions about like your sexuality or your trauma history, or for youth that often ends up like involving like genital inspections for some reason. It just sounds like a horrible, yeah. dehumanizing, violating experience. And then yeah, and like a lot of people like spend years, years and years, if they, you know, and are lucky if they do it, are able to access care. And a lot of people have to go private if they can afford to. Honestly, um, before, I mean, technically it was during, but before the the full, like, onslaught of bills started to hit the U.S., like, there there were Brits that were trying to sound the alarm and get the message out to, yeah. to U.S. based. Yeah, folks. like it was around when the Kirabel ruling happened. Uh, Kirabel was mm-hmm. a D-trans woman uh, whose lawyer was affiliated with the ADF, with the British branch of Alliance Defending Freedom, which is behind a lot of the. It's like an international Christian nationalist organization that's behind a lot of the uh, healthcare bans in mm-hmm. the U.S. as well. 
Also um, anti-abortion, yes. anti-birth control. Yeah. <laughs> really nasty people. Um, but anyway, so like Kira Bell, this, this D-trans woman, it's like she sued uh, the NHS for allowing her to transition and originally like won her case. And that led to basically like the end of transitioning for, for youth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she submitted a judicial review. Um, the initial review was favorable to her, but upon further ev- review, the appeals did end up overturning it. But by that point, the damage had already been done. Yeah. Um, a bunch of yeah. people were starting to lose access to, to care and the likes, and the wheels were starting to spin internally as well in terms of the Tavistock system. And so, like, as a result, like, the wait list just end up getting longer and longer yeah. and longer. Um, yeah, so that was, like, a huge blow that happened in the UK. And, like, UK trans people, like, were basically, like, by that point, starting trying to warn people in the US, like, this is going to come for you, too. Yeah. Like, yeah. get ready. Like, they'd already been, already been, like, suffering under this, like, you know, anti-trans blitz for a while. Mm-hmm. And they, like, knew it was going to spread yeah. beyond the borders of the UK. Uh, and unfortunately, it has. <laughs> yeah. In like the, the very early stages of our project, when we launched at the beginning of 2021, almost immediately after the, the Kirabel initial ruling, we hosted a transcript of a podcast from Blood and Turf that was trying to deliver this message over to um, US-based comrades. Um, and unfortunately, it does not appear to have reached as many people as it really needed to. Um, but we yeah. do have that available in the event that people can still mm-hmm. learn from it because this onslaught is not going to stop. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. And, and, and I think one of the things that we're seeing now is that there's, we're, we're now seeing a kind of an opening of new fronts in a way where you have in the same state at the same time, you have both what I guess I would call the American style approach of just straight up bands. And then this kind of an attempt to implement this sort of British, like, uh, you know, an attempt to implement this sort of like British gender bureaucracy mm-hmm. system. And one of the things that's been happening with this is, you know, okay, so th- there, there's a lot of places where there's inspirations coming for this. Um, And I think, you know, we, we mentioned it briefly earlier. One of the inspirations for this is obviously um, TARP restrictions on abortion, where you have these like... <sighs> unbelievably restricted like basically these targeted things when before before roe v wade uh collapsed there was you know you could you could ban abortions by for example you know saying like passing a bill that says that like okay if you you want to do abortions in a hospital the the walls in in the hallways have to be like Mm -hmm. exactly like this diameter which is not the same diameter as like as as normal hospital walls are so now you can't do abortions in hospitals and so they they do things like this right mm-hmm. and this this is you know and th- this has been a a huge problem for a long time anti-abortion activists have been talking about it for ages uh the democratic party did nothing uh so you know that that's i, I think i think a sort of like forewarning of where this is going mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> A direct parallel is actually over in Arizona, if I remember correctly, because one of the things that they ended up doing down in Arizona is a requirement that they tried to implement um, was this rather controversial piece where they also had to provide information on abortion reversals using certain types of hormone care, right? Similar to how 
in order for people to be able to provide gender affirming care, they have to provide information about detransition and stuff like that. But when you actually start to look at some of the data, not all of it, but some of the data that they are relying on to inform people of this, it is a wildly biased sample or just downright pseudoscience, right? Like they looked at the evidence base for the abortion reversals and it didn't actually work the way that they were saying it was. And it was actually coming from very, very, very explicitly motivated groups, right? Mm -hmm. So like abortion has been difficult to access in Arizona for a very long time, um, in part because of some of these like obnoxious, um, requirements that people end up putting into place through trap laws. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's worth noting that like, and this is true of both the anti-trans bans and the, uh, and, and anti-abortion legislation is that like, it's the science, they're just making it up a lot of the time. Like, you know, <laughs> one, one of the, like one of the very famous things is these like fetal heartbeat bills that required mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, and the thing about like fetal heartbeat bills is that, fetuses don't have heartbeats you're not hearing a heartbeat like doctors will like force you to listen to this it's like that it's not what's happening it's literally not a heartbeat but these people like they put a stethoscope to a woman's chest and heard a beating and we're like oh shit it's the baby's heart and it's like no it doesn't have a heart like what wait this is a fetus like what what are you even talking about but you know but and and this kind of stuff right is you know they're, Mm -hmm. they're 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 basically they're they're doing just scientific malpractice, right? They're straight up lying to people. Mm-hmm. And then they're using that as justification for, you know, actual legislation, which has sort of material impact and like, you know, carries the force of the law behind it, et cetera, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera. And we've been seeing a lot of very similar kinds of things from, from these anti-trans legis- uh, legislation. And one of, one of the ways that they've been able to use sort of pseudoscience to get restrictions on healthcare passed and this is this is true both of sort of the straight up bans and also of these kind of like massive bureaucratic restrictions is by allying with groups of sort of of right-wing detransitioners Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and we're going to talk about that more after this ad break because we unfortunately are reliant on ads to cover this stuff so yeah here's here's ads Okay, we are back, and this is the point where we need to talk about the stuff in the Ohio story that is very weird. Now, I, I think if people have been following the story of sort of anti-trans bills, one of, one of the things that's been happening a lot is there's been this sort of, there's a, there's a network of people who detransitioned for various reasons I don't know, uh, who, who have become very, very hardline right-wingers and who have basically been doing, like, circuits of of the the capitals of, you know, of, like, state capitals and, like, going to Capitol Hill and, like, telling their quote-unquote stories to try to get this, to try to get, like, all trans healthcare banned. Now, so and th- this is, you know, this is something we've covered on the show in the past. What is very weird about Ohio is that you had a group of these right-wing detransitioners who specifically were trying to get it looked like at the very least we're trying to get we're trying to stop the like the actual uh like gender affirming care ban from going through 
and were in favor of more of this restriction stuff. Is that, is that, is that where, is, am I, am I getting this right? Not, not exactly. There's a couple of no, different, okay, well, um, sorry, I'm, I, okay. <laughs> I, can, I can provide my, my brief, yeah. um, description here real quick. Um, and then you can retake aspects of that stuff because something to bear in mind is the fact that, um, like some of the opposition in the Ohio um, testimonies are actually coming from people who view themselves as very left wing. They do. These are radical feminists specifically. Like, they are just hardcore yeah. opposed yeah. to. I mean, I would say they're, they're, their actual politics are very yes. reactionary and even. Yeah, they're actually like, like, just right wingers. But they but call themselves they left wing. Yeah. They see themselves as being opposed to the right. Like, that's mm-hmm. how they present themselves. And they definitely believe that they're anti right wing, mm-hmm. but. <laughs> there's, there's also another component. This one is like. The nuances are sometimes almost impossible to be able to tease out, I swear, (laughs) tomato, tomato. But one of the people who was a proponent for both this current bill and a past bill is actually Corinna Cohn, who does not consider herself to be um, right-wing, though she does appear to be working with a number of right-wing people. (laughs) Um, She considers herself to be, quote-unquote, libertarian. Now... This um, is a red flag yeah. um, for, for those of us who have done any sort of like real engagement with certain types of libertarians or political organizing or whatever, in that if you actually pay attention to some of the arguments that are being made or the collaborations that are being made, you can generally tell which direction their politics are truly leaning towards, right? Is it left wing? Is it right wing? And hers have been steering far and far more right wing. Yeah. Like she uses the like excuse of, you know, I, I want small government and stuff like that. But if you're working with like legislators to put in full on bans, I'm sorry, honey, that's not small government. That's not yeah. small government. That is the opposite of small government mm-hmm. actually. And so like, like it, it's kind of hard to sort of like, encapsulate the the entirety of like the proponents of the opposition into particular political alignments Ooh. because a lot of it is yeah. really based off of like what are their motivations and who are they willing to work with which again tomato tomato but mm-hmm. i'll have to come back to the corinna Cohn one at some point here too because that one is actually um an important timeline in terms of understanding the ohio bills mm-hmm. and yeah i mean Basically, I mean, you have like these, you do have like right wing detransition people like Chloe Cole or Christian Bosley, um, Laura Becker, who like do, you know, they, they'll be hanging out with like the Heritage Foundation or Billboard Chris or, or the Q um, yeah, or the Q Shaman yeah. or our duty. Like, and they, they very much are just working uh, to try to pass these full on bans. But then, yeah, you have also these like, D-trans turf and their more liberal fellow travelers who definitely see themselves as being opposed to the right and are opposed to, uh, I mean, they, they're opposed to the right because they see right-wing Christians as being a threat to them as well and are at least smart enough to understand that um, if, you know, right-wing Christians have their way, they're going to suffer too. But they also want to end uh, trans health care yeah. or restrict it. I mean, uh, some of the <laughs> two of the people who helped organize, helped collect the testimony, the group statement uh, that was submitted under the name "Are You Asking Why?" Max and Katie Robinson, they have ties to Janice Raymond. Dead serious. Yeah, they they do. Janice Raymond helped 
publish uh, Max Robinson's book at, over at SpinFX Press, this Swerf and Turf publisher. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they... They're not actually pro trans, <laughs> like. Yeah, well, we should we should mention so Janice Raymond for people who, uh, someone we've we've talked about on the show a few times, but Janice Raymond wrote a book called The Transsexual Empire, and okay, so people normally leave off the subtitle of it, which is called it's The Transsexual Empire: The Making of the Shemale. It's like one of the original, like original anti-trans people, like incredibly mm-hmm. violent transphobe. Like, it, like both, both in terms of like the career of her work, like physically, like violently anti-trans, and yeah, yeah, she is she is connected to a lot of the modern anti-trans groups, and also the modern, like the modern, I don't know what you'd call them, people who are attempting to take away trans healthcare, but who don't see themselves as anti-trans. I have no idea how to even summarize that into a single term. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> bad? I don't know. I got nothing. Yes. <laughs> Definitely bad. One. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I mean, yeah. And, and I mean, yeah. Max and Kitty fully endorse uh, Janice Raymond's theories. I mean, Janice Raymond, one of the things she's famous for is saying that, like, like transsexualism should be uh, morally mandated out of existence. Like, Max Robinson has said that she supports that. They also both, uh, I mean, Janice Raymond uh, focused heavily on on trans women overall and, you know, also claimed that basically, like, trans women were, you know, committing sexual assaults against women just for existing. Yeah. Max and Kitty are also horrible trans misogynists to actually make, I mean, Kitty makes a lot of propaganda attacking uh, attacking trans women and trying to cast all trans women as predators and yeah just not people you want on your side because <laughs> they're not yeah <laughs> they're a danger to all trans people they're just like yeah trying to find a way to influence trans healthcare in a different way and i mean i i'm concerned that people will hear like oh look at all these d like these supposedly trans friendly d trans people who testified against this ban not realizing that these are actually like terse with an agenda <laughs> who i mean part of them part of what they want to do is to infiltrate like queer and trans subcultures and promote like turf ideology and recruit people like let's put it this way so max robinson in terms of some of her beliefs um refers to uh medical transition for like transmasculine folks as a sado ritual going back to mary daly yeah. um types of oh. descriptions of things and then kitty was one of the people that was interviewed for and gave extensive yeah. background information for a bbc article that was released I believe it was called something along the lines of we are being pressured into sex by some trans women, which was basically oh, God. A, that yes, that that one, right? Like so yeah. <laughs> feeding into this narrative that trans women are sexual predators right into the British media when they were already having a massive influx of anti-trans media that was, again, feeding into the the demonization of trans people as a whole, but then also, like, controlling trans youth and the likes. And, of course, this article not only did it end up originally platforming, like, an actual, like, serial rapist. Yeah, Lily Cade. Like, someone, someone, yeah. so, a, 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 ser- a serial rapist so prolific that, like, within, like, maybe 30 minutes of this article going up like multiple like probably like a dozen people had come forward and been like she raped me mm-hmm. like that yeah. that that yeah. is the person that the bbc was yeah. like coming forward to do this shit with 
Yeah, she ended up posting um, basically a manifesto um, on her website that was even more extreme than aspects of the article showed off. And then I will also note that this article was originally, I believe it was only translated into Portuguese in order to be Oh yeah, it did. moved into BBC Brazil. Brazil. Yeah, yeah, which is also one of the countries that has one of the highest rates of trans femicide. So, yeah. like, yeah, these these they are the people were that decided to go ahead and testify. Um, <laughs> yeah, in opposition. And, and like, well, I'm also personally bringing up Max and Kitty because like they were some of the people who helped like get the testimonies. Like, I found a post on Kitty's Tumblr blog <laughs> looking for detrans and desisted women who were willing to testify against a ban. And then Max was the one who actually submitted the collective statement from Are You Asking Why? She also submitted an individual statement too. So basically, like, they found a bunch of like detrans and desisted turfs on Tumblr to sign a statement and then submit yeah. it to like the state of Ohio, which is kind of wild to think about. <laughs> yeah, you, you don't normally expect to see testimony from turf Tumblr, let alone detrans <laughs> yeah. turf Tumblr, but that is, like, that is really, what happened. Yeah. <laughs> not really who you want to show up for. No. <laughs> yeah, it's really... Really not good in terms of who you want doing your legislation. Like, oh, God. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, we need to take another ad break and then we will come back and talk more about this. So enjoy your brief capitalistic respite from the horror of capitalism. We are back. In, in order to properly understand the situation in Ohio, you kind of have to go back several years, right? Um, one of the bills that ended up being proposed in 2020 was HB 513. Mm-hmm. Um, this was uh, another version of a uh, proposed mm-hmm. ban on gender-affirming care for trans youth in particular. Um, and it was sponsored by representatives Ron Hood and Bill Dean. This one is interesting because one of the groups that ended up coming out in opposition to it was the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network. Um, This is the organization that I helped found in 2019 prior to my resignation. They submitted this opposition after my resignation, but it is available on archives. Then in 2021 and the 2022 uh, legislative session, there was the uh, proposal for HP 454, which was another proposed ban on gender affirming care for, uh, for trans youth. This time it was being sponsored by Representative Gary Click, who is also the sponsor of the current bill uh, that had recently been vetoed and then the veto vetoed. And in May of 2022, the Gender Care Consumer Advocacy Network, or GCCAN, testified in tentative support. Um, the testimony was submitted by Corinna Cohn and included um, suggestions for amendments. These amendments are actually very important. One of the amendments that she recommended was on data tracking. I believe it says here... The second amendment would be a requirement for physicians, mental health care providers, and other medical health care professionals mandating an annual report to the Ohio Department of Health. The number, age, and sex of minor patients who are receiving gender transition services of any type. This was what she originally proposed as an amendment to the bill. The bill, again, 
did not end up passing. Um, but now we are seeing HB 68, mm. which is the one that merges the ban on gender affirming care for trans youth and a sports ban. Because I guess, you know, trans youth playing chess yeah. is somehow like threatening. But so this one was again represented, uh, like sponsored by Representative Click. And this time, curiously enough, um, Corinna had been working more extensively with uh, Click during various portions of the um, of the push for the bill. Right? You know, she testified multiple times. She's posted videos with him, pictures, etc. Another person who had originally founded the organization, Carrie Callahan, did originally start opposing. Curiously, she did not note her prior experience with the organization, but she did uh, start to oppose the the bill and then later starts to put out basically a like a more general call for um, opposition to HB 68, right? You know, trying to, to collect in, um, you know, various types of uh, detransitioned people who were opposed to bans on gender affirming care, right? And then who is it that ends up showing up? Um, it's this weird little, like, turf group that <laughs> originally came out of D-Trans Turf Tumblr in 2013 that, historically speaking, she had prior working relationships with and mm-hmm. even presented their stories to U.S. Path. Yeah, and also, I mean, like... <laughs> Max Robinson too. Like both her, both Max Robinson and Carrie Callahan were both featured in Jesse Singles' Atlantic article too. Like, there's lots of points of connection. <laughs> they've been they've known each other since at least 2016, and you know, worked together. Um, like, I I can't say for certain how it is that they ended up there. It, personally, to me, it seems a little weird that. People who had prior working relationships dating back a decade are showing up in the same place again. And like they are also showing up in legislative testimony for the first time in the state where some like one of the the central figures for a long time there is putting out a call to oppose this particular bill like the the. The coincidences are racking up a little bit here. It might yeah. be good to ask some further questions about what exactly happened, because I, I have some questions. Um, so, you know, this happened in December of 2023, right? Eventually, Governor DeWine goes ahead and vetoes. But at the same time, he makes his, you know, proposal for the drafting of new regulations mm-hmm. with, the you know, the Department of Health and the likes. And Within that is the suggestion of detailed data tracking that is reported to the Department of Health and then to the general public every six months, focusing on things like, you know, um, I, I don't think that he wanted to focus on, like, the, the number of people that were doing it, but he did um, include a, um, like, the nature of the diagnosis. It applies to all ages. It was not originally restricted to um, trans youth like the original testimony was um, from 
from GC can. Um, the time range was also ended up being like it's it's shortened. He wants it every six months, not every year. Um, but you know, very similar kinds of things, right? In terms of what it is that he is proposing for this mass collection of data and a previous testimony that was submitted to the Ohio legislature. In fact, like not long after that fact, um, Representative Click ended up going on an interview with Tony Perkins of Family Research Council talking about the pending veto. They originally did this interview on January 9th, and he noted that the data collection um, suggestion was originally included in a draft version of his bill but was removed due to opposition. And so he's glad, actually, that that was included, although he wished that there would be even more restrictions. Uh, He actually was going to encourage the governor to also sign an executive order uh, banning the use of puberty blockers, not just surgery. Um, As far as I can tell, that has not happened. But he did say that he was going to try. But, like, it's... Like there's there's definitely some weird kind of like escalations that end up happening and some of the like some of the interconnecting threads with individuals that again just happen to keep showing up in the <laughs> same place over and over and over again, either in support or in opposition. Some folks have been consistently opposed, whereas other people have been kind of flip-flopping. The the GC can organization is one of the ones that flip-flopped. It originally opposed all bans, and then now all of a sudden it's like, you know, the the person that they are throwing out into these testimonies was arguing in favor of them. And then, like, you know, the the quote-unquote, are you asking why collective? And, to be fair, Carrie Callahan have also been uh, firmly opposed to uh, full-on bans um, and the Christian right pretty much from the beginning, though for very, very, very different reasons. Mm-hmm. I mean, some of their opposition was like, well, people will go to, like, could go to other states where there's less restrictions. <laughs> like, no, the the stuff we have in Ohio is already, like, has a lot of restrictions, and majority of trans youth, like, only get counseling, and they don't get any, like, none of them get surgery, and most of them, like, only a very small number of them get puberty blockers or hormones, so this should be, like, this should be an example for the entire country. Like, that was kind of... Uh, Carrie Callahan's take on things. And then, like, I mean, yeah, a lot of the the more, like, the D-trans turfs, like, uh, the Robinsons or other members of Are You Asking Why? It's just like, okay, well, they're opposed to the Christian right, and they recognize that, like, if the Christian right gains more power and is banning things, that's bad, um, not just for trans people, but also for, you know, cis, lesbian, and gay people and cis women and, and you know, it will end up hurting them too. So, I mean, even from a, from a self-preservation stance, they understand like why they should be opposed to the Christian right. Mm-hmm. But they're still, if you actually read their testimony, a lot of them do make it clear that they're opposed to transition. And like one, one person called it like compared medical, like trans healthcare to like a Hydra <laughs> and said that like what banning it would only be cutting off a head. Like mm-hmm. these aren't, yeah. And so and a lot of them were, you know, we're also kind of praising uh, you know, regulations like the the group uh statement talks about like it's like you know shutting down clinics won't improve anyone's quality of care. Ohio's existing programs are known for their moderation. Uh, they don't perform surgery on minors. Many clinics out of state do. Blah yada. So um, 
Max Robinson's testimony also said similar, um, <sighs> but that she had it on good word from an Ohioan. Again, right. I have questions. Uh-huh. Yes, you know, say I hear on good authority from an Ohioan that pediatric gender clinics there prescribe hormones pretty sparingly and don't actually perform any underage transition surgeries. Other states do, though. So there's like this whole thing. It's like, like there's still kind of scaremongers like, oh, but these other states like where it's yeah, easier to transition yeah. as a minor, those are bad. <laughs> like they're still yeah. making it clear that the idea that people having easy access to transition, especially as youth, is like a bad thing mm-hmm. uh, in their minds. I don't think we actually mentioned like how like if you actually look at the collective uh, statement that are you asking why issued and like who signed it like a whole bunch of them didn't actually transition like a lot of them are actually desisted <laughs> huh. which means that they like <laughs> never actually medically transitioned yeah. they yeah. considered transitioning or maybe socially transitioned but then they decided not to medically transition mm-hmm. possibly after you know converting to anti-trans feminism or or the like so it's just like a bunch of people who like i decided not to transition i'm desisted like you know, testifying against a healthcare ban. Um, it's also like a kind of a classic strategy too, is like they yeah. have a bunch of like desisted people along mixed in with people who actually like transition and do transition to kind of like inflate the numbers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's see. This is like, standard. Yeah, this is very standard. <laughs> it's an old trick. It's just like, oh yeah, you're like, okay. Yeah. And then a bunch of them are also like saying the ones who did like, you know, transition and do transition, they're like emphasizing how they, a few of them like are emphasizing how young they were when they transitioned and detransitioned. Again, not exactly, yeah, not exactly pro trans. This, this collective here with like pretty, pretty explicit turf ties, including mm-hmm. some of them directly to Janice Raymond herself. Mm-hmm. Um, was the the bulk of the opposition yeah. um, uh, from detransitioned people to the bill? I should note, At, yeah. like that's fifteen signatures right there. Uh, people are yeah. talking about like how there were nineteen mm. people that were opposed. So fifteen of them were either like part of the recruitment or actively recruited on detrans turf tumbler. Yeah, and then like at least five of them are just assisted. They're not detransitioned. <laughs> it's not clear about everyone, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's weird. It's just it's really weird. And it's also been really weird to see the the media just kind of take that testimony of theirs at face value. Well, that, yeah. that's been a problem for a long time is like getting the media to actually sort of like um, investigate or care about people's like political views or activism or actually kind of being like, like sometimes like, I think like, I want to say like the, the Basil on New York Times story we were talking about before has Grace Ladinsky Smith in there without saying that she was you know, affiliated with GC Can. Uh, <laughs> not she's just like not just with, was, was the was, president. She yeah. was the president. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. it's like it's like okay, she's just like represented as this like you know as a detrans woman without going into like actually she's the head of this political organization. Yeah, <laughs> and that's just you know this has happened. This has been a problem for years. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's just like I mean, just a whole lot of different uh, sketchy characters kind of came out for for what's going on in Ohio. I mean, you have like. Um, you know, Republicans and right-wing Christians who just want to straight up ban transition and move towards uh, eliminating it for for all trans people and and work towards making it you know as impossible for trans people to live in society as they can. And then you have kind of more like 
tricky Republicans like DeWine sort of like pretending (laughs) to find some kind of compromise and be like, oh, we're just trying to work for like more comprehensive healthcare that like is just how everyone gets what they need and like sort of like using some of the language that was used by clinicians uh, who are trying to fight against the ban and their testimony and, um, you know, trying to claim, make these claims. But if you actually look at the details, like the regulations they're proposing would make it nearly impossible for anyone to transition, you know, both youth and adults. And then you have like, you know, these um, different medical professionals and kind of more liberal transphobic detrans people who want more gatekeeping and regulation and control over trans people and are kind of like, using uh, detransition and transition regret as a justification for that or praising being like, Oh, well, Ohio, their, their youth clinics are already really good because they're very cautious and they, they use therapy a lot more than they actually uh, allow youth to medically transition. I mean, that argument didn't seem to work out at all. (laughs) Instead, it sounds like the governor kind of was like, Oh, two thirds of uh, youth only get therapy instead of medical transition. We should do that for everyone. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's like sort of like, you know, if you propose restrictions, say, Oh, this is great. Then of course the people who are more extreme will just like take that and run with it. And then, you know, you have, uh, you know, D-trans turfs showing up and testifying for their own weird, reasons, you know, probably because of their connections to Carrie Callahan. But, you know, this also is a chance for them to sort of like, you know, launder their image, make it seem like, oh, look, we're good. We're good detrans people. We oppose the religious right. We're fighting against these bands. And then people who don't necessarily like know any better will like, Come you know, maybe with us in the woods. Right, <laughs> right, right. Because they, all, I mean, this is, <laughs> this is like, that's a strategy. They, they often pretend to be more trans friendly than they really are to sort of like draw people in or be able to like, uh, influence queer and trans communities and slowly slip in like crypto turf ideology and yeah. and recruit people or just flat um, out stalk people that or are in stalk, spaces. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's like there's just a whole lot of different um, you know anti-trans groups and individuals like stretching from like paternalistic medical professionals who want more gatekeeping, who want to restrict the number of people transitioning, like all the way to you know like Christian nationalists, you want to just, you know, wipe us out completely. And, you know, not only, uh, you know, are, are basically at war with bodily autonomy in general. They don't want any, they want to be the ones yeah. who control what people do with their bodies. Like they also want to, like, you know, restrict reproductive care and abortion. It's all part of the same war uh, to just control people and assort their version of, of authoritarian Christianity. And then you have, you know, uh, you know, weird detrans turfs. And it's just like all, you kind of have to like understand like all these different factions and how they sort of like interact together and how, you know, they try to use each other. You know, it can seem overwhelming, but like the more we kind of understand like what we're up against, like the the easier it is for us to, you know, develop strategies of resistance. And it's like, you know, even though, you know, it can seem like we're up against a lot of different groups, but like, you know, we're also part of this larger fight for for liberation. And, you know, we can connect you know, with with feminists who are fighting for reproductive autonomy. We can connect with, like, disability liberation uh, activists who are fighting for better health care for everyone. <laughs> we do potentially have lots of allies, and we do have lots of connections, like, with other movements. Um, 
And so when you think of it that way, it's just like, okay, we're, we're not just like one small group up against this whole like Goliath. It's like, no, we're part of this larger movement that is fighting so that everyone is free and that everyone gets the health care they deserve. Yeah. And I mean, I think that one of the, one of the, the sort of tangential things here too is, you know, this is an extremely negative example of the amount of influence that a very, very small number of people can wield who have extremely unpopular ideologies. On the other hand, there are a lot of us and the things that we believe are very popular. And, you know, mm-hmm. the, the amount of power that we can wield if we are willing to organize and we are when we understand what we're organizing against is immense. And it is enough to drive these people into the fucking ground. Hell yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hey guys, LeVar Arrington here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck, like a rugged half-ton Tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design. The Tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before or check out the fully redesigned tacoma delivering trail dominating power and captivating style the new tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true and with new available tech this legendary truck is getting even better and when you buy a toyota truck you buy toyota dependability meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future so visit your local toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com toyota let's go play Places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. This is Mia Wong back with part two of my interview with Kai and Lee from Health Liberation Now about the long origins of anti trans legislation and policy in Ohio. Let's get right into it. Okay, so the the next thing I wanted to sort of ask about is 
So this is a very, very long running, I guess, sort of strategy and campaign of sort of right wing or right wing and turf detransition like groups advocating for uh, trans healthcare bans. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to I wanted to talk about some of the older campaigns that happened, and I wanted to talk about specifically some of the campaigns to influence WPATH. Oh boy. Right. Right. So we should we should start by explaining to people what WPATH is, because I think unless you're trans, you probably don't know you've probably never heard of WPATH. It's like World Professional Association for Trans Healthcare, I believe, is what it trying to double check that. Yeah. Yeah. World Professional Association for Transgender Health, formerly known as the Harry Benjamin International Gender Dysphoria Alliance. (laughs) They publish the standards of care that is usually used um, to help inform gender affirming care for trans people. And they have done various versions of this over the the course of decades. We are currently on um, version eight. Yeah. And um, historically, they've their way of administering trans healthcare has involved a lot of like gatekeeping and, and psychological assessments or mm-hmm. requiring people to do a real life test, which is mm-hmm. like making someone live as the gender they're transitioning to for like a year <laughs> before they can actually access medical transition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess like social transition, but it's like a test to prove whether you're a quote unquote real trans person or not. Yeah, that's and like sucks. things have, yeah, things have gotten like somewhat better over time, but there's still a lot of medical professionals in and especially like therapists in WPATH who like still want to require some form of gatekeeping who basically still don't trust trans people to know you know who we are and what we need and Mm -hmm. they're like okay but we need to make sure they get therapy we need to make sure we do like all the psych tests what if they regret it and so yeah so I used to be uh, a detransition radical feminist back in the day Um, and I used to know uh, I mean I I New Max and Kitty. I was involved in that particular uh, group for about like six and a half, seven years. And uh, I used to have a blog called uh, Crash Chaos Cats where I wrote about detransitioning and kind of got more more turfy over time. But like pretty early into my blog, about like three months or so in, this gender therapist who worked for the San Francisco Department of Health like left a comment on my blog and was like, I'm interested in talking to detransition people because I think there are two like, well, she left a comment that she was interested in talking to detransition people and, you know, talking to me. And then like, we started emailing back and forth and she opened up pretty, pretty quickly and said like, there are too many F to M's in San Francisco. There's like too many F to M's in the San Francisco Bay area. There are too many like, you know, quote unquote female people transitioning. <laughs> so which is nuts. I know, which is, it's like, oh no, it's like, oh wow. There's, it's like, it couldn't possibly be that people are just coming to one of the most trans-friendly areas in the country to transition because they think they'll have an easier time there. No, there's yeah. got to be too many people. I mean, I think somewhere early in the conversation, she brought up YouTube influencing people towards transitioning. Uh, she thought there was like, you know, pressure to transition in the trans community. And so anyway, she had all this stuff, something about like, you know, oh, people are treating the social problem as a medical problem. And I, you know immediately kind of turned around and started talking with this other detrans radical feminist that I knew, Devorah Zahav, and we started scheming like, okay, 
this like gender therapist who works for the San Francisco Department of Health, like thinks there's too many people transitioning. How do we exploit this? <laughs> like, how can we like use this as an opportunity to like cut down on the number of like people transitioning? It wasn't uh, just the the connection to the Department of Health. Well, it yeah. was also the W path. Well, that that we found out about that. I was just going to go into that. Like, eventually, first we found out she was working for the Department of Public Health, and then we found out that she was in W path, and she actually was like, you know, talking to the president of W path. And that she, like, so she made it clear that, like, she wanted to use um, the stories of detransition people to try to get more clinicians to be take a more cautious approach. And she also wanted to try to develop psych assessments that could supposedly, like, weed out, you know, who the real trans people were, or who was going to benefit from transitioning, and who would supposedly go on to uh, regret transitioning and detransition. Now, the thing is... <laughs> We didn't actually believe that you could tell the difference between someone who would like, yeah. end up like state transition or detransition because we were TERFs, right? We thought everyone could, you know, be saved by radical feminism. Like we and we had a bunch of people in our group who thought that they were, you know, quote unquote true transsexuals, who thought they fit the criteria of someone who would have a successful transition, you know, until they, you know, decided they actually were suffering from internalized misogyny or some other kind of rad femme explanation for gender dysphoria and like the thing is like devora also lived in the san francisco bay area so she actually ended up like meeting up with this gender therapist um, whose name was julie graham and was like pretty open with her with her anti-trans views uh, i mean she wasn't like completely open with her like intentions like oh i'm gonna use this person to try to like work towards ending all transition but she was she did tell um you know graham that she didn't think anyone really benefited from it and she told her that you know she said she knew people who had been true transsexuals who had detransitioned and said, like, lots of really awful things about, like, trans women being fetishists and just, like, you know, all this very, you know, anti-trans stuff. But then, you know, they say, oh, but I think I can, we don't have to agree on everything. I think we can, like, work together. And, like, you know, this gender therapist fell for it. <laughs> like, somehow... Like, Devorah saying all this very anti-trans stuff, like, making it clear that she was opposed to transition, saying, like, really nasty trans-misogynistic shit. Like, none of that was, like, objectionable enough for Graham not to, like, continue to, like, work with her, to continue to be like, hey, do you want to talk to these clinicians about what it is to do transition? And, you know, eventually what happened... Like that eventually this relationship with this gender therapist eventually led to a presentation at the first US Path conference by Carrie Callahan, who's like, she's a kind of an odd figure because she never actually identified as like a radical feminist, but she spent like years hanging out with like detransitioned radical feminists. And she's she's detransitioned, but she's kind of more of like a weird liberal who believes in more gatekeeping. But she's kind of handy. Like we like like, she did this presentation at U.S. Path, and she showed some videos of uh, D-Trans TERFs, including myself. Like, I made one of the, I made a short video, and Max Robinson also made one of those videos. And um, Carrie Stella was the third person. And Carrie Stella, she did, like, she was another, like, D-Trans Tumblr TERF who did this survey. Mm-hmm. Um, it still gets... Like it, it was a it was a survey monkey survey. It's gets cited um, <laughs> by like anti-trans researchers mm-hmm. about detransition. Yep. Which, anyways, so we so there were three of us um, who made these short videos. Both me and Max Robinson by that point had gone like we had hooked up with these weird um, turfs who were dianic witches <laughs> and taken part in these kind of weird 
neo-pagan ex-trans reclaiming femaleness rituals. We had been through this kind of like religious neo-pagan like you know conversion practice rituals. <laughs> Which of course that wasn't something that the USP like those are the people <laughs> yeah. uh, you know US Panther knew that, but mm-hmm. um we hit that. We just, you know, I talked about how I thought I had transitioned due to like internalized misogyny and trauma and on all that. So I was sort of like spreading a more like kind of watered down turf ideology to the folks over at US Path. This is this is kind of an intentional strategy if you think about it. Um, because I wanna I wanna point out something from the the emails about how that presentation was made and then given where Carrie Callahan noted that her slides were quote unquote decidedly unradical. She was trying to talk to therapists as a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, what that basically meant was she was taking away a lot of the um, more objectionable elements, the things that would identify folks like Kai and her previously scrambled state as a turf and being completely opposed to transition and stuff like that. And then putting on, you know, kind of suiting them up, right? Like, you know, getting, yeah. getting them in their, in their nice clothes um, and then presenting them to a, a professional audience who is then able to take that information and sort of absorb it into their general thinking and then how that's going to play out in terms of their changes um, or implementations of care in the long term. Yeah, and that's something that, like, I th- it, it, this is something that's pretty common with, like, detrans, uh, like, anti-trans activists across the spectrum. Like, a lot of like, people like Chloe Cole, there, there's a lot of the sort of, like, just hardline right-wingers who mm-hmm. didn't talk about stuff like, like, they're, they're, like some of these people detransition because, like, the, the thing that they're saying now is that they detransition because they got a vision from God, right? And they don't start with that because... I think yeah. right. I, I mean, I I think I think there should be more skepticism of people who are like, I got a vision from the Christian God, or like the Abrahamic God that told me to do transition. I think there should be more skepticism of that. But that's not something that like, I don't know. If if you if you walk into like W Path and you tell them I was given a vision from God, they're going to be like, what? <laughs> Whereas <laughs> this kind of stuff, right? Like you know, but the W Path people like. And this is something that's kind of complicated about this because I think there's I think there's a lot of people who see W Path as one of the sort of like as one of the organizations that's there to protect trans people and that are sort of allies in this sort of in this battle against anti-trans stuff. And it's true to a certain extent, but they're also like this is an organization composed of a bunch of cis doctors, right? Who can be influenced and manipulated and there's there's trans members as well. There's um, a few, but, but, there's, but it also less power. Well, it sure. also seems yeah. like the trans people who do end up like in a high position at WPATH, like also tend to be like end up believing in gatekeeping mm-hmm. and, and restrictions. They kind yeah. of like internalize the general mindset, and so so it's kind mm-hmm. of like their tokens, right? It's kind of handy for like cis medical professionals who want to like control trans people to have some trans people a- as like figureheads you know, expressing those views. Cause I'm like, Oh, well, you know, look, this person's saying it and they're trans. So like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I mean like, yeah, at the same, like that the first U S path, I mean, just to kind of show how far things still need to come, you know, the same U S path where Carrie did her detransition presentation, 
Ken Zucker was there and he got, he got protested. I mean, like there was a protest against him and they did, I, I believe they ended up like canceling at least like one of his presentations. But yeah, so Ken Zucker kind of this notorious like conversion therapist to focus primarily on, on trans youth. Like he had this clinic in uh, Canada, you know, people, um, I, I mean, and like going after both like trans youth and gender nonconforming youth, they tried to like, you yeah. know, prevent yeah. kids from growing up trans, but they also tried to make, um, you know, non-conforming youth like more gender conforming as well mm-hmm. with the justification, oh, well, it's easier to change the individual than to like make society less bigoted. <laughs> Just yeah. <awful. laughs> yeah. But yeah, but he was the type of people, um, like he was one of the medical professionals that was like, you know, helping to create like the standards of care for, for trans youth for decades. And it took a lot of work to to change that. And like, yeah, he was still given a platform by WPATH in like 2017. That's not that long ago. Yeah. And that's, I don't know. It, it, it's, this is one of these things where like the, 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 the history of, of cis doctors treating trans people is really, really bleak in ways that don't get talked about. And the reason, like, one of the reasons they don't get talked about from people who know about it is that, like, it's fucking bad. Like, it's a lot. It's it's a lot of people getting raped. It's, like, mm-hmm. a lot of, like, I mean, you know, and, and, like, when we talk about sort of, like, gatekeeping for healthcare, like, that was the, like, one of the original things was, like, you know, one of the things that would happen very, very commonly was, you know, it's like, okay, like, if you if you want to get healthcare, like you have to let me rape you, like that. That's the thing that happened all the fucking time, and this is the, and that that's not something that's you know extremely long ago, right? And and you can you can look at like modern W path and be like, well, it's obviously like yes, it, it has come a long way from that shit, but simultaneously, yeah, like I don't know, that's that's something that you know, like there are living people who fucking experience that, right? And mm-hmm. you know, and and when when you when you look at why these kinds of like detrans campaigns, why why these like an, like these these sort of detrans anti trans activists have been so successful in targeting this? It's like, well, you know, it's 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 it's. I think I think it's a, it's a kind of similar thing to like, oh wow, I wonder why like the third KKK was successful in the South, and it's like, hmm, hmm, maybe there are things happening. I mean, that that that, that is slightly unfair. That's being a bit unfair to them, but you know, there's there's still a lot of these sentiments that there's still a lot of sort of like transphobic sentiments that are just kind of like buried beneath the surface. And I think a lot of what we've been seeing over the past, you know, like, like eight ish years. What is time? Hold on. Is that God? Okay. I've broken my own rule about not trying to do math live on air. People don't figure out that I can't do subtraction, but you know, that's, that's a lot of what's been happening for the last like eight years is that people, figured out that there's a, still a lot of sort of lingering anti-trans sentiment and they figured out mm-hmm. where you can target it in ways that are extremely effective we need to go to ads we'll be back in a second with less capitalism and we're back mm-hmm. oh yeah oh yeah I mean like yeah I mean I, I feel like like in terms of like medical professionals who want to gatekeep or what, like they they've been using you know detransition and transition regret as like an excuse for controlling people for 
basically since the beginning of trans healthcare. I mean, that like, like, you know, that gender therapist, Julie Graham, she went looking for us. She like went yeah. looking for, for trans people to use. <laughs> She's like, okay, this is how I'm going to like cut down on the number of people transitioning. I'm going to find some like detransitioned women and then use their experiences. <laughs> and, you know, that's what she tried to do. And like, and I see this happening with other like clinicians too, like kind of going back to Ohio, Scott Leibowitz, mm-hmm. who runs, he's a therapist who runs, uh, the Thrive Clinic uh, in Ohio. And he's another one who has used like detransition to justify like more psych assessments. And uh, I mean, he was actually one of the therapists featured in um, one of the New York Times articles that everyone, uh, a lot of trans people got mad at. The one by um, Emily Bazelon, was it like, I forget what it's the called. The Battle so, for Gender Therapy. Yes, the Battle for Gender Therapy, where he's like kind of cast as this like this poor moderate clinician who's caught between the religious right that wants to ban all trans healthcare and these wacky trans activists who just want to let everyone transition. It's like he's just trying to find this nuanced approach and make sure that like teenagers don't transition and regret it. And you know, yeah, you know, he was like, I mean. Like he was trying to stop the healthcare bans in Ohio by pointing out, like, oh, look, you know, we're we do comprehensive care. You know, most most uh, youth don't go on to uh, medically transition. Like, like Carrie Callahan was also one of the, you know, she in her uh, testimony and in some op-ed pieces that she wrote, she was like praising his approach, calling it cautious, uh, cautious. You know, people who want to like restrict care, implement more gatekeeping will use like detransition stories to justify that. And then, of course, like, you know, the religious right, uh, who wants to completely wipe out all transition healthcare will also use like detransition stories as well. Uh, They'll have their set of detransition people that they, they bring out, like Chloe Cole, to justify for the bans. Yeah, Leibowitz was also um, one of the co-leads for the adolescent chapter in the Standards of Care 8 from WPATH. Um, This was also partially reported on in the Bazelon piece since they were given exclusive access to the draft before the actual final product was um, officially published. And so this particular chapter, um, especially compared to most of the other ones, was it was basically a dumpster fire. Like, it was a massive Mm -hmm. rollback in terms of accurate information, and part of this was actually captured by a white paper that was written by Kelly Winters, a trans woman. You know, she's got a PhD and everything like that. She's been paying attention to this stuff for a really long time, has been working in aspects of WPATH and trying to, like, you know, kind of help re... um, reshape some of the yeah. uh, the the transphobia that's been happening. Yeah, I mean, she's been to... fighting back against, like, mm-hmm. how trans people are pathologized and, you know, against paternalistic yeah. healthcare for, for a very long time now. Yeah, so she ended up writing a white paper about um, version 8 with a significant section focusing on um, the adolescent chapter and some of the weird, um, like pseudoscience laundering that ended up happening because that chapter not only did it include like you know lip service to things like quote-unquote rapid onset gender dysphoria which is a this is a a bunk pseudo-diagnosis that was invented by Lisa Littman after surveying a bunch of anti-transparents but then within that chapter you also see the the laundering of specific studies that are focused on um predominantly detransitioned women predominantly gender-critical or radical feminist. 
These two papers were Litman 2021, um, which surveyed a lot of the um, kind of the, the old D-trans turf groups that we had been connected with right around 2017 or so. So this was before the ROGD paper was published in 2018. But then there was also, um, let's see, there's the Vandebush study, which I believe that was published in like what, 20. I don't remember what year that was published in the Vandebush study. Now, this study was done by Eli Vandebush, who is basically um, post-trans, the uh, half of a, uh, a gender-critical detransition project. And it had a very similar kind of like recruitment strategy, sometimes an overlapping recruitment pool. But the difference is that this happened after the ROGD paper dropped. ROGD is that's rapid onset gender dysphoria, which is this yes, thing correct, made up yes. to be like all the yeah. kids are suddenly transitioning. It's like no, this is yes, no. yes, <laughs> yeah. But that, that's that what that acronym frame. is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. When that paper dropped, a shift in some of the narratives from people who are coming out as detransitioned was also starting to be observed. More people were starting to call themselves as having experienced ROGD. This is where the Peak Resilience Project came from. Um, and so as a result, like this Vandebush study was also pulling in aspects of that kind of narrative as well, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, this None of this actually makes sense. These are wildly biased sample pools. It's not going to be generalizable to basically any population. Um, It's only focused on like a very particular subset of people who end up detransitioning and then develop some kind of like political belief connected to it, right? And then it's being used as legitimate data as part of standards of care that is supposed to be like yeah it's, yeah, it's just, it's ridiculous. Well, it's it's like, absolutely ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous, but I, I, don't know, I don't feel like, like, I feel like the medical professionals who want more gatekeeping, like, they just need some detransitioned people to justify it. They don't really care if, like, the people ended up detransitioning because they, like, found God or radical feminism or, like, or, you know, our old group, a lot of the detrans women, I think I already mentioned this before, like a lot of us like talked about how like we had the same kind of dysphoria that any other trans person had. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we're still fighting it off. That was a thing too. Most of the people I knew still had gender dysphoria. <laughs> and we're just finding like quote unquote alternative ways to cope with it. And it's just like, I don't, I mean, a lot of people were trying to like talk themselves out of like transitioning again. <laughs> so... I don't think the issue here is like, oh, transition didn't work for these people. It's more like they internalized the idea that no one said transition. But again, like people don't, it's like people don't, yeah, they only care about using detransition in order to reduce the number of trans people or prevent transition. They don't care about transition or detransition that, you know, results from transphobia, either internalizing it, yeah, internalizing it, uh, an anti-trans ideology or, you know, not being able to access transition because of you know living in a transphobic society coming from a transphobic family you know having to go into the closet to find a job that kind of stuff like it's never about like yeah it's never about preventing detransition that results from trans from transphobia it's just about finding excuse to control us on our access to healthcare there's this perverse incentive structure here too because you know these doctors are trying to find you know they're trying to find something that gives them more ability to do gatekeeping. So it's it's in it's in their interest to in order to in order mm-hmm. to preserve and increase their own power to 
find this kind of stuff, which means that they're not actually doing their job. They're going out and trying to find ways to like they're trying to find, you know, whatever, whatever, like absolutely dog shit studies or like just stuff that like probably should be considered medical malpractice. Like they don't really care because again, it's, 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 it's just this like loop because that's the thing that they need. So they'll, they'll find whatever like crank pseudoscientist is like cranking this stuff out and they'll use it. Yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, I also feel like this is one of the reasons why there aren't more resources for people who end up detransitioning too, because yeah. they want to be able to use it as a scare, scare story, right? Because mm-hmm. like, really, I mean, like, okay, like, you know, I detransitioned and like, it was hard um, because there weren't as much like resources and support out there. And I mean, a lot of the supports I did find were crappy because they were coming from TERFs. But it's like, it's really just kind of like transitioning again in a lot of ways. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, if you can create resources to make transitioning easier, you could definitely create a lot of similar resources to make detransitioning easier. But that's not there. Mm-hmm. And I feel like like one of the reasons that is not there is because if like if it's easy for someone to detransition, get what they need to have a good life and just move on, then it's harder to use those stories. Like you'll have less people who want to like, you know, who you can kind of like, uh, you know, indoctrinate into these anti-trans ideologies and then use them, you know, as part of the anti-trans movement. But also just like, I mean, if it's not scary anymore, if you just feel like, okay, like this is just an issue of like making people, making sure people get the supports they need so they can just get on with their lives. Like we just treat it as a practical problem that needs to be solved instead of using it to feed a trans panic. Like, yeah, it's just like the, the, there's actually like less reasons for gatekeeping. I mean, I feel like like creating like basically you're kind of like creating a safety net for in case like, you know, in case something unexpected or negative happens. So you're like, okay, well, if you transition and things you end up changing your mind or things don't work out the way you think they would, here's all these supports you can turn to. So like, I feel like that's kind of a better long term thing to work for is like, okay, like make sure there are supports for people no matter how their transition turns out. Like if then including, you know, detransitioning or if people like, you know, face health complications, like make sure that there's like supports in place for that. Don't use that as an excuse for gatekeeping. Yeah, that's unfortunately one that I um, know all too well the consequences of. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah. yeah, and I, I think I think also the other thing that's going on is is there's just. Like all of these groups see both trans people and people who do transitions as just not like, like they're, you know, they're, they're, they're violating the, the Kantian categorical imperative in the sense that they're not treating people as actual humans they're treating them as objects or Mm -hmm. tools. Yes. And Mm -hmm. once you do, when you do that, right, like everything suddenly, you know, like who cares what happens to these people afterwards, because you don't think of them as people, you think of them as just, a thing that you're using to do another thing. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, absolutely. The unfortunate thing is that unfor- like this can also happen within the community as well. Um, when they are trying to advocate for certain kinds of things, people will end up using each other oh, yeah. as tools um, in order to meet yeah. their own personal goals. Speaking of goals, make it your goal to uh, buy these products and services. Oh no. <laughs> So 
Let's go back a little bit to about like 2019. Some of the bills are starting to to go out. We had the test balloon bill that was happening in South Dakota that eventually turned into 2020, right? In this time frame, an organizing call went out on the, well, the site previously known as Twitter by Carrie Callahan that was looking for people that wanted to advocate for better healthcare outcomes for trans and de-trans people, right? During that time frame, I had been starting to go off of my hormones. I started going off of them a few months prior to that point. And in that time frame, I started experiencing certain types of what seemed like progressive vision loss right? My, my brain, I sometimes have a, a tendency to, to panic, I guess, um, especially when it comes to things like health anxiety. My brain started to make the internal connection. Did going off of my hormones cause my vision to change, right? And unfortunately, as I started to talk about this online and the likes, I was getting a lot of encouragement from other folks, usually like, you know, gender critical, anti-trans parents, that kind of thing, that yes, absolutely, my like the hormones were causing me to have vision loss, right? And it was really impacting my ability to function in my daily life, right? But another part of me at the same time as all of this was starting to feel like I was starting to feel aspects of regret and anger, which made me want to do something. This is a very common narrative, right? It made me want to do something so that other people would not end up in the situation that I was in. And so I answered this call, probably not the the best of decisions that I could have made for myself, but I decided to go ahead and do so. Answered Carrie Callahan's call. Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. I I decided to to go ahead and say, yes, I will... um, I will connect in with this. I would like to to be a part of it. I had to apparently apologize for talking to the wrong clinician um, in public first. But Jesus, no, I, you had to yes. apologize for talking to Jack Turbin because he was too affirming, and she was mad that you mm. would speak to him yeah. because he's too willing to respect trans kids. Autonomy. Yes, yes, <laughs> because he prescribed puberty blockers. I was talking to the wrong clinician, and therefore this was not allowed. But anyway, so. Eventually, um, the actual like organizing committee starts with four people. So it was me, Carrie, um, Corinna Cohn, who was later testifying in favor of some of these bills, um, and then Grace Ledinsky-Smith. There were some other people that were in and out, um, but they ended up dropping off um, very early on. So it was predominantly the four of us that ended up being the actual formal board at any point um, in the early stages, right? And so we started to, to draft a lot of this stuff, but like over, I was starting to, to wonder about two things, right? Like after, after some exchanges with other board members about who it is that we should be predominantly outreaching, should it be clinicians or should it be people that are actually impacted, um, people who have gone through gender affirming care, regardless of how they identify themselves currently, like, what is our main priority? The other board member at the time wanted to focus more on the clinician route. I did not. My focus was on if we are going to be doing a quote unquote patient advocacy organization, we should be focusing on the people that we are Mm -hmm. supposed to be connected to, right? Like 
Those are who we are. Why would we want to put more power into the hands of the clinicians that supposedly harmed people? It doesn't make any sense, right? And then, like, you know, as these wheels were starting to churn, another part of me was starting to to worry um, that over time, um, the trajectory of this organization at that point was going to start advocating for more restrictions or full-out bans later on in the future, possibly even partnering up with some of the um, some of the more right-wing groups. I believe I actually, um, I, I think I, I worried about them becoming like the, the gender care equivalent to Wolf, um, mm. which was unfortunately pretty accurate, I would say, in terms of my, my yeah. concern. Um, that was, yeah. that was part of my, my formal resignation to, to the board. I, I stepped down as vice president about five months after I had joined on, um, because I could not see any, I could not see any recourse within the, the group for, for changing directions. Um, I couldn't be party to them hurting other people, even if I felt hurt at the time. And so I ended up taking a step back. Um, my vision was still having problems. Um, but you know what ended up making that a lot easier, actually? It's funny. This is not something that was recommended to me by anybody that I had been talking to um, about this stuff who had been more exposed to anti-trans um, rhetoric. Mm. Like, I, I talked to blind people. Yeah. I, I ended up talking to, to blind people. Um, I connected with folks from the um, National Federation for the Blind. Um, it was a group that was recommended to me by somebody I knew from a, um, from a past job that I had because she was the daughter of somebody who went blind later in life due to a genetic condition, and he was a member of the NFB, right? He was part mm-hmm. of the Federation. Um, and so that was her recommendation to me. Um, I hadn't reached out at the time. My brain was too focused um in doing this weird we gotta save people kind of bullshit direction but like eventually after i'm like taking a step back from all of this stuff i decided to go ahead and and pursue that suggestion from you know this random person in my life not from anybody i had been connected to in terms of organizing and when when i went there like the only thing that I ever got was acceptance. There was no questioning. Nobody asked what happened. Nobody asked like any sort of details about like my, my personal views. Like I didn't have to express any forms of like, you know, sorrow or regret or anything like that. A lot of it was focused on, okay, these are the issues that you're currently dealing with. Here are some of the things that you can work on to make your life easier. Here are some supports that you can find within your states um, if you need to do things like, you know, get certain kinds of mobility training, um, using a white cane and the likes. Um, if you need to learn how to use Braille, all of that fun stuff. Here, here's even like specific doctors that you could try to go to who can like really assess what's going on. With your vision, because before that point, I did not have access to specialists. I was living in like, you know, rural Maine. There was, there was nothing there. I would have had to travel like over three hours to go to Boston for me to be able to see a specialist. Instead, like they were able to to point me to people who had um, specializations in um, like retinal conditions. And so when I went there, 
you know, they, they did their usual tests. They ruled out um, some things that were known to run in my family, actually. But they did ultimately decide that, like, my retinas are not processing light correctly and that it's actually likely genetic. Um, so unrelated to hormone usage. Completely yeah. unrelated <laughs> to hormone usage. In fact, you know, as I was going through that process and I started to reflect on what my vision was like before I even took hormones, let alone stopping it, like certain symptoms were actually there just at a much lower degree since mm-hmm. like at least my teens. I already had uh, difficulties with my night vision. Um, I had difficulties with uh, color contrast sometimes. Um, My light sensitivity wasn't nearly as bad. Usually it was only with migraines. But um, over time, like, you know, that started to to break out more where like even just like, you know, there being too much sunlight was painful for me. But like some of this stuff, it definitely predated when I started my transition But because I wasn't really given space to actually unpack any of this stuff, I didn't really have the ability to to make those connections. Instead, what happened was, you know, I I join in on this organizing board. I connect in with uh, three other people that were looking to, to advocate in very particular directions. And, like, my... My story was not something that was meant to get support. My story was something that was meant to scare people. Yeah. I was also nominated as the spokesperson, which meant I would have had the responsibility to do things like, you know, respond to the press or give sound quotes or whatever, right? I gave um, certain kinds of descriptions over to a... Um, like a Democratic candidate that we had been scheduled to, to meet with, uh, Ryan Starzik at the time down in Arizona, um, and, you know, give the whole spiel, right? You know, a visible trans person with a story that for a lot of people who, like, most people are very connected to their senses, whether that's hearing, vision, touch, or whatever, they can't conceptualize a life without them. And so it terrifies them, right? But... Like, that doesn't actually help the person be able to get to a point where this is a livable life. It's even a freeing life. There are certain things that I can do that other people can't do. I can navigate inside the apartment without having the lights on because Mm -hmm. I know where everything is mapped out in my head and I can rely on touch. I can pour myself a glass of water and not have to worry about it spilling because I can feel where it, like, goes up. But that's not really something that, like we're not even allowed to think about. We're not even allowed to think about like, okay, so if this thing happens to you and there's documented evidence of it, not like something that's completely imagined, like my brain decided it was, here's what we can do to help. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the kind of things that people really need to be able to access, right? You know, if something happens to you, these are the things that you can do um, to be able to... to work through this and live a more comfortable life um, in the way that you are happy with. But I don't really see any of that happening, to be perfectly frank. Well, no. <laughs> like, I'm also thinking back about the, like, the standards of care A, because, like, you know, there's this, you know, 
um, inclusion of aspects of regret and detransition and stuff like that into things like the adolescent chapter. But you know what they don't include? A chapter for detransition support. Yeah. No, because they're not serious about that. I guess they just want to use it as like, a scare story and a justification for controlling people or, exactly. or you know putting them through a bunch of assessments or something like that like again i i very much believe that there's a connection between like uh a desire for more gatekeeping and psych assessments control over trans people and not having support for like detransition or retransition either because there's not like there's, i feel like there's even less talk or resources yeah. for people who end up retransitioning after detransitioning because no one's trying mm-hmm. to figure out like oh like the idea that detransition could just be temporary or that a lot of people, you know, yeah. go on to retransition later on or just confirms for them that they really are trans. Like that's also a thing that, you know, cis people don't really want to touch. It's one of these things where, you know, like pain is useful to these people, but like the actual like people experiencing the pain aren't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that has its own perverse incentive cycle because, like, yeah, if, if you want to harvest scare stories, you don't want people getting actual help. Mm-hmm. And that is a absolutely terrible incentive structure for making sure people actually get the care and the help that they need. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it absolutely sucks. Like, mm-hmm. It's just, Yeah. Oh, I, I remember realizing, like, when I was still uh, a detrans radical feminist, like, realizing that a whole lot of, like, people who wanted to um, restrict or eliminate transition, like, like had an investment in my suffering. Because, <laughs> you know, yeah. I was, and I was struggling a lot. Like, I do, I, it, it can really be hard to detransition, like, right now, because there are, you know, there is a lack of resources and support and understanding. But the thing is, like, I, I you know, I kind of slowly realized over time, it's just like, Oh, all these people want to use my story, but they they need me to suffer for it to like work out for them. Like they don't yeah. have any interest in making my life easier. Like they don't have any interest in like helping me like create a good life and being happy. They want me, they really do want me to be ruined and miserable forever because they can use like that's more valuable to them. Like my suffering matters more than my happiness to a lot of these people. Yeah. Like, you know, that was definitely one of those moments where I was like, what? Like one of those things that eventually, you know, led me to get disillusioned with the whole thing and be like, you know, what did I get myself involved with? But yeah, yeah, it's just, it's, it is really like sick and perverse how, how anti-trans people like use suffering, <laughs> use both trans and de-trans people suffering for their own agenda. Um, it's awful. Yeah. And, and I think this is something that, you know, there's, this is the sort of it's it's also the, there's a broader set of incentives here too, which is the sort of the structure of the media market, right? Which that the media mm. that's like the like you know the the entire media broadly, like you know like if if it bleeds, it leads, right? Like that's 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 the that's the actual media model of you know everything from mm-hmm. like your like shitty local right wing tabloid to like the New York Times, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that this plays out for trans people and for detrans people is that the, like like the, the thing that these people that you know the journalists also are looking for is suffering like they don't really mm-hmm. care you know like they like none of these people ever report stories that are just like hey like i went to a gender clinic and it was great like <laughs> nobody's gonna like they, yeah. they don't think anyone's gonna read that like i would read that because you know that's you know that's great but like but like they don't care about that there's there's no sort of sensationalism there the, the mm-hmm. sensationalism is like 
you know, you, you then this is why you get like the Washington Post interviewing this like you know like like these people who are just like oh like I was I worked at a gender clinic but I was secretly doing evil or like you know or 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 you get all of and this is why a lot of even pro trans like media coverage is about things like suicide rates and about things mm. like you know like how like how likely you are to die if you don't get the healthcare that you need because mm-hmm. it's it's the same incentive structure it's the thing the thing that's useful to sell to people is suffering and that i, I don't know what the solution is to that because i mean i don't know uh, have have media that's not based on profit i guess but like you nice. know <laughs> decommodify <Yeah>. the news <laughs> But that's one of these things where it's like, you know, like as long as long as like every single like shitty local newspaper is making all of their money from like crime scare stories, they're not going to report. They're not going to you're not going to get active reporting about police because they need the police to like Mm. give the like feed them all of these shitty crime stories. Right. And this is the same thing Mm -hmm. here where it's like you're not going to get actual good reporting about trans people and about people who do transition. Because nobody actually cares about that because the incentive structure is just suffering and that trickles down through through the healthcare system and through you know through like the legislative system and it trickles down through our social networks and what support networks exist and don't exist and it's a absolutely like if 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 you were just to like ask someone how do you want a society to be run zero people would answer we want it to be based on the production of suffering and yet we have done this but it doesn't have to be like this to sort of finish the david Graeber quote the ultimate hidden truth of the world is that it is something that we make and could just as easily make differently so let's go build a world that's safe for trans people this has been It Could Happen Here. You can find more of Lee and Kai's work at healthliberationnow.com. I recommend you go do it. It is great. And go and make the world otherwise. Hey guys, Mario Lopez here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the trails. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, you and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander with three spacious rows of seating for up to eight passengers. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back, enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on RAVs, Highlanders, and more when you visit biotoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. 
With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Welcome back to It Could Happen Here. I am once again Robert Evans talking about it happening here. And in the case of today, uh, because we mean something different every time I introduce the show that way, uh, we're talking about the carceral state uh, and the worst reactive impulses of society coming for people who use drugs recreationally, who either have a problem or don't with them and simply don't want to go to prison for it. Uh, And specifically, we're talking about all of that within the context of the state of Oregon where I reside. Uh, Because back in 2020, the state of Oregon passed a measure, the first in the nation, decriminalizing all simple possession uh, and use of street drugs. Um, So heroin, methamphetamine, Um, marijuana was already legal, but you know, everything is, you can't get arrested for simple possession of small amounts of stuff, right? That's the gist of the law. This passed by a pretty wide margin, uh, 58 point something percent of Oregonians voted for it. It was a ballot measure, not something the legislature pushed through. And it came as Oregon, like the rest of the country was kind of wrapped in the grip of an escalating drug crisis Uh, in 2020. And again, that's before the ballot measure passed. Oregon had the second highest rate of drug addiction in the country and ranked nearly last in access to treatment from 2019 to 2020. Opioid overdose deaths in Oregon increased by about 70 percent. So that makes the case that the problem prior to the ballot measure was pretty severe and that the current state of affairs, which was everything was illegal and you could go to jail for possession of, say, heroin, um, was not working out for anybody. However, in the years since the ballot measure passed, overdoses have continued to rise in Oregon and miraculously almost the drug problem did not solve itself overnight. Now, we're going to be talking about some reasons for that, but now it is time for me to introduce our guest for the episode, Oregon Public Defender Grant Hartley. Grant, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, first off, I wanted to say from where you're standing as somebody who whose job is to represent Oregonians generally with the least resources who are charged with crimes, what were you seeing prior to 110 and what are you seeing after it? Well, I think prior to 110, we had um, you know, a population similar to what we have now, which is um, individuals who were struggling with houselessness, with housing instability, um, who were struggling with mental health. And as a result of many of those factors and others were um, coping with substances. And as a result of that, um, many of them would get wrapped into the legal system. 
And one of the issues with our legal system is that it is based on compulsion. And so when someone came into the system with a drug problem, our first reaction is to compel them into treatment, to force them into treatment, even though we know that that is not effective. And, uh, you know, at times it can be. And, and generally where you see the most success with it is where there's more hanging over the person's head, more leverage that the system has. And so, you know, somebody who uh, has a substance use disorder and commits a robbery and is put on probation and they have a choice between going to prison and doing treatment, much more likely to engage um, in treatment. But when you have low-level possession where um, as a society we've deemed that it should not be punished by prison and frankly that should not be punished by jail, the problem is is that the only tool that the system has is jail. And so if somebody says, I'm not ready for treatment, the system says, well, we're going to put you in jail then. And then they go to jail. They're, it, what little they have is destabilized and they get out without any treatment. And as you mentioned in the opening, the biggest thing is just the incredible dearth of services in our community. There is not nearly enough um, outpatient treatment, but especially inpatient treatment. Um, and that's, that's important for those houseless folks because you can't expect somebody to engage in outpatient treatment and then go back and sleep on the street at night and not use. So I, yeah, that's, that's, I think the general gist of what it looked like. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I think that's all really important to keep in mind. And it's particularly important. And the reason we're doing this episode is because the last two years really is when it's escalated. We have seen this this increasing and very organized campaign against 110, and it's being pushed by the police who are angry that they're not able to arrest more people, particularly more homeless people. It's pushed by a lot of business owners who have convinced themselves that the reason why downtown Portland has had such a hard couple of years is because there's too many homeless people and they can go after them and get them off the street by having them arrested. This is all my opinion, not yours here. But there has been what, – what is not up for opinion is that there has been an escalating campaign to portray the measure as a disaster and to portray it as the center of particularly Portland's ills, but also more broadly the state of Oregon's ills. And I think there's a number of reasons why that's dishonest, which we'll talk about. But what we're, where, where that's kind of culminated now is this year there are two big pushes to get rid of 110. One of them is the push uh, by a ballot measure or to put out a ballot measure basically repealing 110 as it exists. And the other is a push by the legislature. And you kind of have separate plans pushed by the Dems and the Republicans to, in the case of the Republican plan, basically put things back to the way they were, if not more severe in terms of your ability to arrest people for possession. And the Democrats' plans is to recriminalize possession, but make it all basically the lowest level of misdemeanor. I don't think either of those are good plans, but I wanted to talk about kind of how you would characterize the backlash campaign against 110 and how much of it do you think is rooted in actual problems caused by the measure? No, I mean, it, it has caused most of the backlash. I, I, I would agree with you that it is um, a lot of business communities, but it's also just, you know, average Portlanders because what they see is people on the streets struggling, using drugs in public um, because that is the only place that they can use drugs. And, you know, that's 
a problem of houselessness. They, people have to ask themselves, am I upset that I'm seeing somebody use drugs or am I upset that this person is sleeping on the street and needing to use the drugs in the street? And, and that is the same of business owners. You know, they call and complain that there's somebody on the stoop next to them um, using fentanyl. But is the issue that that person is using fentanyl or is the issue that that person is on the stoop next to them because there are no housing services in our city? And so really, Measure 110 is being scapegoated for two huge issues, which is the influx of synthetic heroin or fentanyl into our community and into every community around the nation. It is not restricted to to Portland or to Oregon because we decriminalized. It is everywhere. And then just the the houselessness crisis, which is tremendous in our city. It is it is so bad. And people are essentially arguing that because we decriminalize drugs, more people are on the street. And I I just don't think that there is any data to support that. Yeah. And I think part of the the reason why people suspect that is is again because of how much dramatically worse the problem has gotten in recent years but it's gotten worse everywhere it's gotten worse in states like Oklahoma where it is and has remained very illegal to possess this stuff um Oregon is not the state with the worst death problem due to drugs per capita and the states that are worse or are worse in various ways are all states in which it's criminalized it's very frustrating to me when you look at like, well, we passed 110 in, in 2020 and these problems have gotten worse since. And it's like, well, but these are all problems that have gotten worse everywhere. And they're problems that are not driven by legality or at least the fact that it's no longer criminal to possess heroin. It's driven by the fact that we had a horrible pandemic that traumatized people. They lost loved ones. They lost jobs. They lost support. It's driven by the fact that the price of housing continues to rise. It's driven by inflation. It's driven by the fact that, I mean, to no small part, everybody's got brain worms from social media. That's not a zero percent factor in both people's anger at the houseless um, and in the fact that people are falling through the cracks. Like we have a million different things. I don't mean to list that as a comprehensive list of our problems either, like drug addiction and drug like deaths due to overdoses are, are caused by a variety of things. And one of the reasons why the death rate has been so high is that. If you're addicted to heroin, you can't just stop doing heroin or the consequences are really, really horrible, worse than a lot of people are going to deal with. And so people keep using and they keep getting drugs that have been tainted with fentanyl. And it's hard not to die doing that. Like rich people can continue to test their kits. People who are, you know, have ha had the benefit of not just education, um, but a stable home in which to do drugs and sort of the resources to know and to be able to like test their shit will test their shit. But most street level users don't have that kind of option. And I, it frustrates me that it's all getting scapegoated on this on this ballot measure. And so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about how they're attempting to go after 110, because it looks like right now the primary threat is legislative, in part because if they push another ballot measure, Oregonians get to vote and we'll see how they vote. But reversing it by 10, you know, almost a 10 percent lead is not an easy thing to do. And I kind of think Oregonians might surprise them in terms of not being willing to repeal this thing. Legislatively, we don't have really that kind of option against it. If they're able to get a kind of enough people behind an essential repeal and they'll frame it as, you know, we're just trying to tinker with the law to make it work better. But if, if, if they can get enough people behind that, there's really nothing to do about it, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, one of the things that I 
in my opinion, was a, a strategy on the part of the opponents of 110 was, I mean, they, they have some very wealthy financial backers. Yes. And so, you know, it, it is not cheap to do a, um, a ballot measure. And, you know, they know that they can use that money to do media buys and to spread all of the misinformation that they've been spreading thus far. And I think that, frankly, there are people in the legislature that don't want to recriminalize, but feel that it is the lesser of two evils. And the unfortunate thing is, is that what we are essentially doing is delivering them a watered down version of that ballot measure. And and they were intentional in that ballot measure. I mean, they made it as bad as could be. It includes more than just recriminalization. Um, you know, it, it includes what what is commonly known as lend bias law in federal courts, which is essentially that people who deliver a substance that causes an overdose can be prosecuted essentially for murder. And um, it is a archaic understanding of how uh, the distribution of drugs works or the testing of drugs works. And and so they, they tried to make it as bad as possible in order for the legislature to essentially go, well, we don't want that to happen. And, you know, I, I would worry about a ballot measure. I mean, I, I agree with you that it's a big swing and I, I have faith in the, the, the voters of Oregon. But the fact is, is that the media has portrayed this very unfairly. You know, there was there was an article recently from the editorial board um, at the Oregonian, and they advocated for recriminalization. And in it, they cited that they want a data-driven approach. There was not a piece of data in that article. It was all based on misinformation. And and the same is true. I mean, law enforcement are the worst about this. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're constantly saying, "Oh, well, we just want tools so that we can confiscate the drugs." And so that we can um, refer people to treatment because we all know that's all police officers want to do. And yet when you look at the e-citations that came out of Measure 110, those were meant as to be a referral tool. And that was one of the big mistakes of 110 is trying to use police officers as an ambassador for treatment. There is a culture in the police community that treats drugs as crime. Right. You are a criminal if you are a drug user. And I am not, you know, I'm not saying police are a monolith. I'm saying that is the culture that exists. And to expect them to change that overnight because the voters said they want to decriminalize was rather naive. And, and it's obvious because just here in Multnomah County, I think in in uh, basically a 24 month period, they issued something like 900 e-citations or that was during a 30 month period, excuse me. And during a 24 month period. Um, in 2018 and 2019, they arrested more than 3,300 people on PCS. And that is, what, nearly three times, more than three times as many people when they were able to put handcuffs on the people that they were meeting with. And 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 Multnomah County was actually better than most. You look at Washington County, 71 e-citations. In 30 months, 71 tickets were given on this. And the ticket was supposed to be the tool by which somebody is referred to treatment. And so, you know, in some ways, Measure 110 had some serious structural and implementation issues, but that doesn't mean that we just go back to what the voters said. And one of the things that was the biggest issue in implementation is that a lot of funds were supposed to be redirected, I think, from marijuana sales was one of the places, to treatment facilities and to treatment options for people. Like these people who are supposed to be getting tickets instead of arrested for drug use were supposed to be being kind of pushed gently towards options. Um, But the actual money for those options took more than a year to start arriving. And it is still not 
at a very good clip. And there's a number of reasons for this, but like when when they frame it as like, well, we decriminalized stuff and all these problems kept getting worse. It's like, well, for one thing, they kept getting worse. They were getting worse when everything was illegal at a rapid pace. And number two, you didn't do what was supposed to be half of the measure, which was increasing the amount of care that people had access to. Yeah, absolutely. And, and would, to hear people talk about it now, I mean, during a legislative committee, I think there was one um, representative or senator who said, like, well, why why did it take so long for this to get implemented? It was 2020 and 2021. Like people are quickly forgetting how chaotic things yeah. were then. Yeah. And and the other thing is, is that when you put that money into the system, it takes a while to build beds, to hire people to do that. And what the opponents of 110 are doing, what the people seeking to recriminalize are doing, they're really preying on our collective impatience. Yeah. You know, it's it's. They're saying, oh, well, you know, nobody is going and, and um, voluntarily engaging in treatment. Therefore, we must mandate it. And again, no one's voluntarily engaging in treatment because there's no treatment available yeah. to voluntarily engage in. And the idea that by making it criminal, we can somehow fix that is actually counterproductive because we're taking all those funds that we could be putting into additional services, into outreach, and we're instead putting it back into law enforcement or into probation or into the jails or into the state lab to Mm -hmm. test these drugs. And I want to continue off of that. And I want to talk, bring out some more data too. But first, we have to go do a plug to ads. So here's ads, folks. All right, we are back. Um, we're back, and I wanted to. I think there's two really good things to keep in mind when, uh, as an Oregonian, you're arguing with friends and family about 110, or if you're outside of the state and people bring it up because they saw like a three minute piece on Fox News where some smarmy asshole talked to a guy on the street. You know, you should be aware of a couple of things. Number one, when people talk about how it's not working, the thing that you should bring up is like, well, what about the 40 years or so of criminalization prior? like that led us to this point and at which the acceleration in deaths was highest. Um, and the other thing to bring up is, well, there's th- these claims that like public disorder, drug use, all this stuff, overdose deaths have gotten worse since 110. There's no evidence that that's the case, right? Uh, and there was in fact a study into this uh, by New York University that found no evidence of an association between decriminalization and fatal overdose rates in Oregon and Washington. And I want to I want to read a couple of quotes from that study. So first off, quote, publicly available calls for service data were used to compare Portland's use of the 911 system to Boise, Idaho, Sacramento, California, and Seattle, Washington, before and after 110. Uh, This was between 2018 and 2022. Public-initiated calls for service did not change after BM 110 was enacted in Portland. Portland's 911 calls for service data align with comparison cities for property, disorderly, and vice offenses with similar seasonally fluctuations. So for one thing, what you'll notice is that a lot of the articles about 110 started to hit both when we would have winter weather come in and summer weather come in. Both of those lead to ex- surges in overdoses and drug use because the weather's shitty, right? People have less to do, less options. And especially if you're living outside, it's 100 during the day or it's 12. Maybe you want to do drugs more because you're uncomfortable, right? Yeah. Uh, so again, I, I, I think that it's important. There's this study from New York University on 110 and, and you know, its lack of impact on this stuff. That shouldn't be the final word on this. I'm certain there will be more studies, but that is a word on this and they simply have no data. 
well, there, on their there, side of things. You know, there's a, there's another study as well. I mean, we, you know, there's a, a study out of Portland State University, um, and and it's interesting. It was a follow up study. The, the full report has not been released yet, but they did release some of their key findings, and um, it was in the the first year PSU met with officers and interviewed them about their perceptions of 110 and how it was going. As you might imagine, officers didn't think it was going well. And they said, oh, well, violent crime is increased and property crime is increased and overdoses are, are increased and all because of 110. And what this report found is that is not true. There was an uptick in property crime, but mm-hmm. we cannot say that that has been a result yeah. of 110 for years. You, you, you need a lot of data in order to look at that. And so, um, you know, this idea, and, and I mean, the ultimate finding of that study was that it is too early to recriminalize it based on the data. It is too early to recriminalize. And so, um, but again, you know, I, I think that instead what we are relying on is people's fear and what people see in the street. And, you know, I, I think it's also this idea. I mean, I, the reason we are having this discussion, in my opinion, is two things. One is public use, right? Individuals using on the street, it's in people's faces. Nobody really cares when someone is in the warmth of their own home using fentanyl. It's when they're on the street. Or or I should note when someone's in the White House using fentanyl, because it just came out that the president and high staff were prescribed fentanyl and ketamine in the White House when Trump was in office. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and, but no one, no one really cares about that. It's it's when it's in your face that people care. And the other one is the perception that crime is, you know, that Again, a lot of crime is caused by drug use, right? There is an underlying uh, association there. But the idea of criminalizing drugs because of that is the idea that you can somehow arrest somebody, compel them into treatment, and therefore prevent crimes. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's like the precog, the sci-fi sort of things. It is it is a backwards system. No, and, and we actually know what will stop the drug-related crimes, which are mostly theft, right? Yeah. Um, and one of the things that will, and they've seen this, I believe it's the Netherlands, that you if you're a heroin addict, the government will give you free heroin. You have to take it at, at a center, like you go in, you sign a thing, and you get your dose, and you take it there. That saves them money based on doing nothing, because when they do nothing, people break into houses and cars, et cetera, and boats, because it's it's the Netherlands, um, <laughs> in order to steal shit so that they can not get dope sick. And just giving the dope to them winds up costing a lot less per addict. Well, the other thing that gets people clean or that stops people from committing crimes is housing, is providing them a roof over their head. I mean, when people are, even, even if they're not on the street, if they are housing unstable, they're trying to make a living and it is not easy to do so with whether it's a felony record or your you know your upbringing or whatever reason has held you back if if they have housing i mean there there are numerous studies that show that when you put somebody in housing their likelihood of using drugs drops their likelihood of committing crimes drops and yet we are focused on this recriminalization rather than trying to house these individuals yeah and it's, you know, when you talk about this, when you talk about decriminalization, and in Oregon's context, there's a good reason for this. People talk about Portugal. Portugal, Spain also did this, both Portugal and Spain, uh, and I believe Portugal was first, decriminalized simple possession and use um, quite a while ago. It's been that way in Portugal for, I think, like 20 years. Like, it, they have a significant amount of data on it, right? And 
Oregonians, the people who were pushing for 110, cited it specifically as like a reason why this was worthwhile. There was recently, I think last year, some state officials and whatnot went to Portugal to look into the system. And so as a result, you've seen like attacks on the Portuguese uh, drug system, including there was a recent Washington Post article about how Portugal's starting to regret it. They're going to recriminalize maybe. And the reality of the situation is that there was has been a recent surge in illicit drug use in Portugal from 7.8% in 2001 to 12.8% in 2022. That is an increase. It's still below the average in most of Western Europe. It's lower than France and Italy. I believe it's lower than the UK. It's lower than like most of Western Europe. And I, I just kind of pointing out the fact that Portugal is also dealing with an increase in drug use. Again, Saying that that's because of the culture of decriminalization seems silly when there have been corresponding surges everywhere where it's illegal. But beyond that, it ignores the fact that there have been really significant benefits that we do know are benefits of decriminalization because of how long we've been looking at it. From 2000 to 2008, prison populations in Portugal fell by almost 17%. Overdose rates dropped because in part they funded rehabilitation, which Oregon still has not really done. Uh, there was no surge in use. And in fact, less people seem to die when the system changed, right? What has increased is some drug-related debris, uh, particularly most of the surges have been in the last, literally the last couple of years, which again, makes me think it is tied to the global trends that have made a lot of people more miserable and living in a more difficult situation and at more risk of drug addiction. What happens in Portugal politically? Hard to say, but overall, decriminalization we have a lot of data for seems to have largely been a success. Um, and if that's kind of what we were to see in Oregon with decriminalization, I would be happy even if there's more mess on the streets, although I don't think that that's inevitable. And this gets us to what I think is kind of the most dangerous point that the opposition, the people who want to recriminalize make. And it's dangerous because it seems like they have a good point, which is People shouldn't be people with families, just regular people should not have to see folks using hard drugs on the street as they walk around town. And I agree. It is not reasonable to expect people to walk with their kids to school past somebody shooting up heroin or smoking crack. It's it's fine. And not you're not you're not like a uh, uh, some sort of like narker party pooper if you don't want your kids to see that. But that's already illegal. Because it's like it's illegal to drink a beer on the street in Portland. The problem is not that the cops can't do anything about it. It's that, again, they're choosing not to do anything about it. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and again, it, it is the issue of we have people living on the streets, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it is. Yeah, I, I completely agree that people shouldn't have to walk past that. But maybe that is a, an, an opportunity to talk to their child about the need to make sure that people have a safe place to live. And also, yeah. I mean, it's also, you know, if we had safe use locations, you wouldn't see nearly as much of that. And frankly, the system would have a better argument yes. for punishing yes. um, public use if we had safe use areas because we have put so many people on the street. Yes. Somebody who has no place to be and is desperate and is addicted using in a place where you can see them is understandable. Somebody who has options for places to be and is choosing to do it in front of people, that's a bit of a different case. And again, I also want to just really, because I've, I've encountered this in arguments about 110 with people, um, it did not make it legal to do drugs in public. That remains illegal. It's illegal to drink a beer in public. Absolutely. Yeah. Pub public use is... 
I mean, but again, these these are sort of the narratives that are being perpetuated by, and and it a lot of it is is law enforcement, and and honestly, my take on it is that law enforcement doesn't really care about recriminalizing possession. They don't. What they want is they want the ability to search people. What yep. what what that gives them is it gives them the right to say, hey. I have probable cause to believe that you have drugs on you. Therefore, I'm going to search you. I'm going to search your car. I'm going to, you know, search your house, right? It it gives them that ability. And they, you know, many of them will be very forthright about that. And the, the biggest infringements on our personal privacy, on our Fourth Amendment rights, on our protected privacy interests has always been drugs. It has always been the criminalization of drugs has eroded our our privacy interests and um and that is that's what's really at play here because i don't i don't think the officers i mean i and this is again not a monolith i'm saying i don't think in general law enforcement really um is that concerned with you know getting individuals off the street and into treatment if that were the case we would have seen far more of those e citations well, you know, we would see the officers doing there. There is a statute that allows them to transport people to detox. Right. We don't see that that often because really what is at issue here is the ability to search people based on probable cause that they possess drugs. Yeah. Yeah. And we will we will talk about what people can do if they want to stop the recriminalization of drugs in Oregon. But first, here's some more ads. We're back. So, Grant, kind of the question I am left with at the end of this here um, is what do we do to fight back against this? What is actually what is going what are the options people have? Obviously, the thing that first occurs to me that is most accessible is make a fuss to your elected leaders. So, you know, that this is something you'll think about come voting season. But um, first off, how would people do that? I guess. Yeah, I mean, you know, figure out who your legislator is, um, you know. Write to them, call them, let them know that, you know, you want to see, you know, realistic fixes to this. You want to see investment in public health, in outreach through peer navigators and case managers that you don't want to see us return to the same war on drugs that has failed. Yeah, it's it's hard. I will say if you're looking to do research outside of like a lot of a lot of local news. This is a hard time for local news. Well, good local reporting gets done in a number of places, including Oregon. Also, a lot of smaller local news agencies are very much in the pocket of the people who help to fund them, which is some of the people funding the attempt to repeal. So if one of the better articles that has been written recently um, was in The New Yorker. It is great. Uh, yeah, there's a I'm, I'm pulling it up right now. Uh, there's a great New Yorker piece, uh, A New Drug War in Oregon, um, that was published just this month. Probably the best major outlet piece I've seen on it. And yeah, it's it's it talks a lot about the stabbing wagon, which is um, a kind of independent, although they've now should at some point theoretically be getting a significant amount of funding. But like they provide drug users, not just with, um, you know, naloxone or, or Narcan, um, but with uh, safe use materials like syringes and stuff that are clean. Um, this is down in the south of Oregon in a place called Medford, which has both one of Oregon's worst drug problems and also is a much more conservative area. So obviously these people are very 
controversial. And I will say, you know, one of the things this article does well is they get at, even within people who are supportive of 110, the conflict between kind of traditional Absolutely. addiction recovery resources and organizations and some of these new, often these new organizations are either started by or run by people who have or do currently deal with addiction. Um, and I, I think covering that conflict is valuable. There's some stuff that frustrates me about it. And this is, I think there's a lot of negativity towards Stab and Wagon and its founder that's unfair. I also think some of the things that she has said about traditional addiction recovery resources are very unfair from her point of view. And I, I think I think when I look at the problem, the only comprehensive solution is multiple options for different kinds of people. Because I know a lot of people who have dealt with addiction and recovered, and no two of them did it the same way. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I think that, you know, both of those are necessary, right? Harm. I, what, what I always say is that the, the beauty of harm reduction is that not only does it ensure that somebody survives long enough to make it to heart, uh, to um, recovery, yep. but, it, but it also builds a relationship with that person. It builds a relationship of trust so that you can have a conversation about the need for recovery. You know, as, as a public defender, um, I don't get the benefit of the prosecutor or the court to or probation to wield power and to make my client do what um, they should do because I'm holding power over them. I, I have to build trust, right? I, I have to have a relationship of trust with them and I have to find out what motivates that individual and and try to utilize that to, to encourage positive steps, right? And and that's true of our, our case managers and social workers that work with us. And that's that's what the system doesn't have, right? The system is just trying to use the threat of incarceration in order to get individuals who are not ready um, for recovery to engage in recovery, and that that's detrimental. I mean, yeah. we, we we need we need both harm reduction and we need traditional treatment. We need culturally competent treatment. You know, there needs to be wraparound services, and that's one of my concerns here. Is that you know we know that. The criminal legal system didn't work. When 110 passed, we had um, a drug court that dealt with low-level possession, and its graduation rate was around 17%. Yeah. So 17% of people, and graduation meant 90 days of sobriety, and that was 17% of people. That other 83%, if they fail out of the program, again, the only tool the system has is jail. And so all they did was did not hook them up with services, and instead- eventually punish them for not being ready for treatment. And th that is not how we get people into recovery. Yeah. I, I think that that's a really good point. When I when I talk about both how people can help if a loved one is starting to deal with drug addiction and when someone, if someone you love is getting into a cult or getting pulled into conspiracy theories, it's actually the same advice. Yeah. I had a friend come to me recently because a loved one of theirs was starting to to kind of talk about some really concerning conspiracy theory stuff, right? Um, and they were like, what do I do? say against this? How do I argue against it? And my, my answer was like, well, you don't really. You you make it clear like, hey, I don't really believe this. I don't find this compelling. But like, you know, I love you and I'm always here to listen if you want to talk about this kind of stuff or you want to talk about whatever. And that is the same if someone's starting to get pulled into a cult or if they're dealing with drugs. Because as you noted, if they have a pathway out and they're not going to have to. It's not this kind of thing where you've been yelling at them and, may, and then like they have to come to you with their head, tail between their legs and like, I was wrong. I fucked up. That's a barrier. If like, well, this this person cares about me and is always going to be like willing to, you know, talk with me like no matter what, 
well, then that's less of a barrier. Then you're not, you haven't built a wall that they have to get through. They can just come to you when they're like, I need help. Exactly. I mean, it's based in relationships. And I mean, that, that's one of the issues, right? Is that too many people, um, not just in Portland, but everywhere, see individuals on the street and assume the worst and see them as the other. They don't see them as part of the community. And so they're more than fine with a system locking them up because of their addiction. And, you know, we all need to recognize that, you know, it, that falling into that lifestyle, you know, whether, whether it is because of, you know, where you were raised, how you were raised, um, you know, whether you got addicted to pills because your doctor prescribed them, there's a lot of reasons, whether you had childhood trauma, there's a lot of reasons why people get an addiction. And, you know, to simply assume that somebody, because they're addicted to drugs is a criminal, a bad person, um, you know, it, it is making them the other. Yeah. And, and it's so much easier to be punitive when you're just seeing that person as the other. Yeah. And I, I did want to note if people are looking for resources online, both about 110 and how they can help in the fight to stop it from getting repealed, um, you can go to HJRA, the uh, Health Justice Recovery Alliance. Um, they have – you can sign up to get information from them. They have community resources um, they have like updates on what's going on. I think you can find through them a uh, a way to like automatically kind of send a, a form message to your elected leaders. So just Google um, Health Justice Recovery Alliance Oregon or Health Justice Recovery Alliance 110, and that will take you there. They've they've got a lot of stuff collected there, both resources if you're having arguments with with people about this and information on how you can help at least try to do something. Yeah. And I will say also the ACLU has been yes. very active in this as well. And, um, you know, they have an action plan on their website, um, that, you know, tells you some of the things that you can do in this. And, and, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I, I think obviously contacting your legislators where we haven't even started the legislation or the legislative session yet. Um, and so there is still room to change this and yeah. to at least, make it less bad. Yeah. Um, which, you know, it's these days, sometimes it feels like less bad is yep. the, is the goal that we need to strive for. It's harm reduction again. Like exactly. That's, that's yes. how I tend to look at the legislative side of things. Um, well, everybody, that's going to do it for us here at It Could Happen Here. Grant, thank you so much. Should you have anything you wanted to plug or direct listeners towards before we roll out here? Um, I mean, I think, again, it's just, um, you know, Go to the ACLU website, go to HJRA's website, um, get involved. But but more than just that, um, no matter what happens during this legislative session, you know, remember that all of these folks on the street are people and they need assistance and, um, you know, and they they need help and continue or consider, you know, contributing to a, um, a recovery organization or volunteering to go out into the community. Um, you know, if you have lived experience with addiction, consider becoming a peer. It, it is so impactful to have individuals who have struggled with substance use go out in the community and engage individuals who are currently struggling with it. And that is the best trust building. That is the best way to get people into recovery, not through handcuffs and jails. Thank you very much, Grant. I couldn't agree more. All right, everybody. That's it for us today. We'll be back tomorrow with more of it happening here.
What up, everyone? It's Lunchbox from the Bobby Bone Show, and I'm here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car, like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive. You can count on your new Camry to get you anywhere you need to go. And with available features like heated seats and a multimedia touchscreen, you can stay connected in comfort and style. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip and agile sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a dependable Corolla built just for you. Plus, both Camrys and Corollas are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and affordably. So visit your local Toyota dealer and check out amazing national sales event deals on Camrys, Corollas, and more when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Discover BetMGM, the betting app sports fans in the Capital Region turn to for nonstop action all winter long. Take the excitement of football, basketball, and hockey to the next level with same-game parlays, exclusive signature bets, odds boost promos, and much more. Plus, now you can sign in, place bets, and manage your cash balance under the same BetMGM account in D.C., Maryland, and Virginia. With the same username and password throughout the DMV, it's never been easier to play with the king of sportsbooks. Download the BetMGM app today. BetMGM is an authorized gaming partner of the NBA and an official sports betting partner of the NHL. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly and offer resources to help you make appropriate choices. Please gamble responsibly. BetMGM.com for terms and conditions. Must be 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. only. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. There's plenty to celebrate in March and Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. Welcome to It Could Happen Here. I'm Garrison Davis. Now, last week, I spent a few days in Las Vegas for the Consumer Electronics Showcase. Most of the time at the convention, I was just walking around the show floor, looking at various new types of surveillance equipment, AI products, and various other bullshit that was being peddled to the many, many industry attendees of CES. But I was also able to go to a few panels. Now, panels are really interesting because you get to hear people who are working inside industries talk about stuff that they don't usually really publicly talk about very much. And on the first day of the convention, I went to a panel about drone technology. Half of the panel was about how Walmart is launching new delivery drones in Dallas, Texas. The other half was about police drones. And that's what we're going to be talking about here today. How the police are using drones, why they're using drones, and how you can probably expect to be seeing a lot more drones up in the sky piloted by either an AI or a police officer. So let's get started. Chula Vista is the southernmost kind of medium-sized city in California, with a population of 278,000 people. Chula Vista has a police force of 289 sworn officers, as well as 120 civilian employees. 
On top of their nearly 300 officers, they operate a drone fleet 10 hours a day, 7 days a week, launching high-def camera-mounted drones from four locations throughout their small city. I'm going to quote from an article from the MIT Technology Review, which did a deep dive onto Chula Vista's police drones back in February of 2023. Quote, Chula Vista uses these drones to extend the power of its workforce in a number of ways. For example, if only one officer is available when two calls come in, one for an armed suspect and another for shoplifting, an officer will respond to the first one. But now, CVPD's public information officer, Sergeant Anthony Molina, says that dispatchers can send a drone to surreptitiously trail the suspected shoplifter, unquote. And this really gets at the heart of how these drones are going to get used. They exist to funnel more people into the criminal justice system. Instead of having to choose between two calls, one of which actually could relate to saving someone's life, the other just a petty crime, now the police can easily follow someone doing a petty crime while responding to other calls and eventually catch up. It's a way to just expand the amount of people that can be arrested and thrown into jail. Nowadays, drones are pretty common tools for police. Over 1,500 departments currently use drones. Usually for special occasions, though, like search and rescue, crime scene documentation, protest surveillance, and sometimes tracking suspects. But at the moment, only about a dozen police departments regularly dispatch drones in response to 911 calls. The first of which was Chula Vista PD, who launched their, quote, drone as first responder program back in 2018. With the goal of having an unmanned aerial system, or drone, be proactively deployed before an officer is on scene. Now we'll hear from Chief Roxana Kennedy of the Chula Vista Police Department talking on the drone technology panel at CES. We are seven miles from the Mexico border, and we are the second largest city in San Diego County. So we have about um, 290 officers and we serve a community of about 300,000, but because of the close proximity to the border, we have a lot of people that travel back and forth. We have a drone program that I'm awfully proud of. Uh, we are responding proactively to calls for service in our community. And so we have drones stationed from four different locations throughout our city. We have pilots in command that are on the rooftop, and then we have a operation center where we have sworn officers that are part 107 pilots that fly the drones so we are responding now to calls for service on average an officer on scene a drone pilot on scene that's sharing information with our officers live streaming that information on our cell phones or in our computers they're receiving information about the call within 90 seconds on average and so what it's doing for us in chula vista and for our community is we are providing information rapidly real-time information to officers so that they can make better decisions so that everyone goes home safely. We say the community's safer, the officers are safer, and the subjects that we encounter are safer. So we're awfully proud of what we're doing. The way police are able to deploy drones used to be a lot more limited. The use of drones is regulated by the FFA, the Federal Aviation Administration, in most cases, the FFA requires that both hobbyists and police departments only fly drones within the operator's own line of sight. But starting back in 2019, agencies and vendors can start applying for a Beyond Visual Line of Sight, or BEVLOS waiver, 
from the FFA to fly drones remotely, allowing for much longer flights in restricted airspace. Chula Vista PD was the first department to get a BevLoss waiver. The MIT Tech Review estimated last year that roughly 225 more departments now have one as well. Another thing that I always talk about because I think it's critical is the concept of why we're using drones, what the benefit is to the community with the use of our drones. And I truly believe that when my officers can pick up their cell phone before they even respond to the call and they can look and see the scene, what's happening, where the individual is, if the person's pacing in the middle of the park, there are no children around and there are nobody, there's nobody that's within the reach of this individual harming, you might not have to rush into that scene so quickly. Officers can de-escalate, make better decisions, and I mean, this is just a game changer for law enforcement. And right now, you know, we were the first agency to be involved in the integrated pilot program with the FAA. We're very proud of that, that they trusted us enough for us to be the organization that brought forward all these, these ideas that are now being utilized in law enforcement. Now, I've watched a lot of videos of police talking about why they're using drones, of drone training companies talking about why police drones are so important. In one video on their website, this guy from Skyfire Consulting was talking about how police may not have had to kill Tamir Rice if they simply had a drone watching beforehand so they could see that it was a toy gun, which is a ridiculous thing to say because... In the 911 call that jump-started this entire police interaction, it was expressed that the caller thought the gun was probably a toy. And this notion that if simply if police have more ability to surveil, they'll be able to respond safer and apply less deadly force, I think is a pretty suspect premise. Now, the effectiveness of drone technology in law enforcement is challenging to verify and quantify. The MIT Tech Review could not find any third-party studies showing that drones reduce crime, even after interviewing CVPD officers as well as drone vendors and researchers. Quote, Nor could anyone provide statistics on how many additional arrests or convictions came from using drone technology. I was able to find some data on CVPD's website talking about how many drone-initiated interactions resulted in arrests, but quantifying additional arrests seems to be a little challenging. Now, if you look at Chula Vista PD's own drone response stats, the vast majority of deployments, I estimate around 70%, are for what the Director of Investigations for the Privacy Rights Group, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, refers to as, quote, crimes of poverty, unquote, which he believes will be the target of most drone policing as opposed to violent crime. Nearly 30% of Chula Vista's drone deployments are for what's categorized as disturbances. Almost 15% are for psychological evaluations. 10% are for, quote, check the area and information. Over 7% are for welfare checks. 6.5% is for, quote, unknown problem. And over 6% is for suspicious person. And another 6% for traffic accidents. Now, some drone deployments do result in patrol units not having to be dispatched, but CVPD also says that drones have existed in thousands of arrests. And I'm really not sure if having a drone following someone around is the best thing for a 5150 psych evaluation. The presence of a police officer doesn't always make those situations better either, but 
I don't see having a drone be a, a really calming presence if you think someone needs mental help. Funding a whole fleet of heavy-duty surveillance drones and paying dedicated operators costs money. Now, it's unclear to me how many drones Chula Vista PD currently has, and on their website, they list 10 different drone models currently being in their fleet, most of them really expensive DJI drones, like the DJI Matrix, the DJI Inspire, the DJI Phantom, the DJI Maverick, as well as drones from a few other random companies. But nevertheless, Chief Kennedy is very grateful for their local police foundation for heading up the funding for their DFR drone first responder program. Let's hear from her. I don't know if anyone in here is in law enforcement, but many agencies use drones. And there are all different types of drones that are available. I call them reactive drones or ones that are the, like the tactical drones that you can use to go in on a hostage situation or a missing person to check in the in the um, canyon areas or you know interior drones. We have drones that go underneath beds, go inside attics, all types of different drones. And many organizations have drones like that. But a DFR drone is very unique and different because these drones are flying, as you can imagine, 18,000 missions. It puts a lot of wear and tear on them. So, but that is one of the biggest challenges beyond the fact of funding. So we don't have huge budgets that are allotted for, for drone programs. And so we've had to be very, very creative in our police department. And we we're very blessed to have a police foundation that has taken on the responsibility to help us uh, really start our drone program and continue it going forward. So funding is always going to be a challenge. And depending upon the drone that you use, there are some drones that you can't get any, you can't use for asset seizure funding, nor can you get grants for because um, sometimes when it comes to foreign made drones, there are many challenges as well. So you have to think of that. And then we deal with legislation right now. That's the new challenge that we all have. Um, we had to fight some uh, battles. I'm, like I said, I'm agnostic. I want to use what's the best drone out there and protect the information. Um, and we do that with encrypted uh, software programs that are on private servers. But you'll see that there's a lot of discussion about drones and what drones we should be using right now. We'll get back to the chief's offhanded mention of legal battles in a bit here. But Chula Vista's budgetary situation may not be as dire as the chief makes it out to be. On top of their current $55 million operating budget, Back in 2020, the La Prensa newspaper revealed that departments in San Diego County had secretly been getting hundreds of millions of dollars in high-tech police equipment, including armored vehicles, facial recognition and phone-breaking software, license plate readers, drones, riot gear, among other miscellaneous technology, as a part of a DHS grant program due to their close proximity to the U.S.-Mexico border. Chula Vista was one such department, and as of 2020, so four years ago, they had already received over $1 million in grant funds from this DHS program titled the, quote, Urban Area Security Initiative. Considering Chief Kennedy's budgetary concerns, drones actually have a lot of upsides financially, as they are often a lot cheaper than alternative surveillance methods. 
as well as being relatively easy to deploy remotely, either with a joystick or just by clicking a point on a map from a comfy office building. Issues around this ease of use was pointed out by Dave Moss, the director of investigations for the privacy rights group, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, who was quoted in the MIT article saying, quote, up until the last like five to 10 years, there was this unspoken check and balance on law enforcement power, money. You cannot have a police officer standing on every corner of every street. You can't have a helicopter flying 24 seven because of fuel and insurance is really expensive. But with all these new technologies, we don't have that check and balance anymore. That's just going to result in more people being pulled through the criminal justice system, unquote. My officers constantly are on the air now. Is UAS-1 available? Is UAS-1 available? Because it's giving them more information. Think about the fact that you can look at your cell phone. I could be anywhere in the world, and I could look at, it lets me know whenever there's a drone flight, and I can watch, I can have visual awareness, aerial overlay of what's happening in my community, no matter where I am. Advancements in technology are leading to further normalization of police surveillance. Ten years ago, would people react to news of a 24-hour police drone program the same way they would now? What was once the threat of Big Brother has since become a very sought-after and fetishized nanny state. In the V for Veneta graphic novel, anarchist writer Alan Moore imagined a fascist Britain characterized by surveillance cameras around every corner. And now cities around the country are setting up their own street-mounted cameras linked to private security cameras and ring doorbell cameras to create a network of live coverage around a whole city, which is instantly accessible to police. The more widespread consumer adoption of new technologies like small camera-mounted drones and doorbell cameras, the more acceptable it seems for police to add such technology to their arsenal of surveillance tools. It almost becomes expected. Chula Vista PD has routinely declined to answer why their drones are always recording both to and from the scene, and the department has put in a lot of effort into managing the backlash against their expanding drone program. And I'll tell you one thing, even some of the activists, they were very concerned about drones in the sense of privacy. What are you doing with these drones as you're responding? You're trying to gather data and information to spy on us, right? And we have had to go to a lot of uh, detail in explaining that as our drone lifts off, it is immediately, it is recording because that's the information gatherer for us. As that drone responds, the camera is already going almost three miles down the road to where the, the scene is and giving us vital information as the officers are responding. But one of the criticism was, well, on the way back, is your drone just going in my backyard? What if we're smoking marijuana in our backyard? And I said, if you're in California, does it really matter? But what? We'll let that one go, right? Um, but we said, okay, we get your, your concern. And so what we did was we worked with the, the, um, the software company that we um, work with, and they created an automatic so that as a drone returns, it automatically tilts to the horizon. So we're not recording anything. If another call came out, we could immediately, we'll go back in, it'll flight map it for us, and it'll share that information later on. But the goal is to listen to your community as well. Chief Kennedy's claim here is difficult to back up because CVPD have refused to show the public any of the drone footage they routinely collect. But if we take the chief at her word here anyway, 
she admits that the drone goes back to recording at street level as soon as there's another 911 call, as they record everything on the way to a scene. And the way she phrases this whole tilt feature is quite misleading, because the camera never actually stops recording. She just claims that it tilts slightly upwards in between 911 calls. But it's still capturing footage up to three miles away the entire time it's in the air. Police in Chula Vista have flown over 18,000 missions with their drones. That's a lot of footage. When talking about the privacy concerns had by some residents of Chula Vista, Chief Kennedy really emphasized how much her and the department really care about listening to community feedback and how data transparency is so important to CVPD. Community engagement is essential, especially in law enforcement, because there, is, there are so many challenges when it comes to misinformation that's out there. And whenever you're a part of what's deemed as a government, everyone thinks that you have some ulterior motive when you're involved with any type of technology. And so we have worked really hard to build very strong relationships with every aspect of our community. So it was about in 2015 when we started talking about the concept and the possibility of drones. And I laughed when Shannon said George Jensen because that's my story that I used to and I love it. Because I made fun of my guys when they said that we want to fly drones. I said, oh, come on now. What are we going to be George Jetson flying around the cars? And then I saw today they talked about a flying car. So it happens. Right over there. It happens, all right? And so... um, With the community, we started having these conversations. We created a a working group. We started doing community forums. We started asking the community about what would you think if we were able to do something like this? We even went to some of the um, organizations that may not always be so supportive of these types of groups. We worked with the ACLU and asked for their input on our policy. So before we ever flew a drone, uh, we call it the crawl, walk, run phase. We're still at the very end of crawl. We're not into walk yet. And we've been doing it again also for five years. So um, you have to make certain that you're transparent. And we provided all types of information that are available. If you go to children, uh, all you have to uh, put in is children's police drones, and it'll come up with us. And, and you can look at all the things that we do, all the information that we share, the flight maps that we share, Um, I mean, it's just super important to have those community forums. Every year, we do a community forum twice a year where we ask for input from our community. Later on in the panel, Chief Kennedy said that CVPD is, quote-unquote, extremely transparent about their flight data and, quote-unquote, have nothing to hide relating to their use of surveillance drones, which is a curious claim considering the fact that CVPD has historically kept all drone footage hidden from the public and has fought in court to do so, despite the chief's emphasis on the police's commitment to transparency and the importance of listening to community feedback, even going as far as to consult the ACLU when developing their drone program. For years now, the Chula Vista Police Department has denied all FOIA and public records requests for any drone footage. In response, Arturo Castanares, a Chula Vista resident and owner of the local bilingual newspaper La Prensa, filed a lawsuit against the city. CVPD argued that all drone footage should be categorically exempt from the public records requests on the basis that the footage could be used for a future investigation. 
Just last December, only a few weeks before CES, the California 4th District Court of Appeals ruled that this blanket exemption is invalid and that not all drone first responder footage could be classified as part of a pending or ongoing criminal investigation, pointing to examples such as 911 calls about a roaming mountain lion or a stranded motorist. And police were not happy about this ruling. I'll talk about their reaction at the end of the episode. But controlling the narrative about the drone first responder program has been of the utmost importance to Chula Vista police, as the chief herself expressed at the panel. And we're real good about telling our story. If you don't tell your own story in law enforcement, other people will tell it for you, and it might not be the right story. So we've gotten really good at sharing on our um, social media um, and through you know, YouTube channels and everything, success stories of what we're doing. That is quite the claim there. To paraphrase the Electronic Frontier Foundation, without public access to their drone footage, it makes it very difficult to assess how much privacy you have in Chula Vista and whether police are even following their own rules about when and whether they record sensitive places like people's homes, backyards, or public protests. And that's why this recent ruling and the legal precedent it sets is a huge win for actual transparency and marks the first step towards the public finally getting a look at how these drones are being used in Chula Vista. With drone first responder programs spreading to police departments across the country, modeled after the one in Chula Vista, combined with the increasing presence of stationary street-level cameras, the ability for police to be watching everywhere without the need for on-the-ground officers, creates what the EFF refers to as, quote, a fundamental change in strategy with police responding to a much, much larger number of situations with drones resulting in pervasive, if not persistent, surveillance of communities." Unquote. Speaking of persistent surveillance, near the end of the panel, the chief announced that Chula Vista PD is planning to expand their 10-hour-a-day drone first responder program to a constant 24-hour-a-day drone surveillance program. More than doubling the department's capacity to have eyes in the sky would mean a lot more work hours for drone operators, as well as a large increase in the amount of video files being stored indefinitely. But Chief Kennedy claimed that they're looking into offsetting costs by replacing some of the drone piloting team with AI-assisted piloting and autonomous devices. You've clearly been a leader uh, with drones as first responder um, technology. Looking forward, what does the uh, future hold for the department? I assume you're spending a lot of time uh, telling others about the program in addition to using drones, but uh, beyond that, what's it look like? Well, my hope is that we'll be moving towards 24-hour operations. Right now, we're from um, sunrise to sunset. We go until close to 10 o'clock at night, which goes a little bit beyond that. Um, and then one of the challenges, and I know you're only getting a, like a little piece of the information about exactly how we're doing this, but from the four different locations that we fly, on each of the rooftops, we have what's called a piloting command. And that piloting command is contracted through a company, um, and we uh, and they just have visual awareness of, of the sky, and they work in coordination with our, our drone pilot that's inside our operations center. 
but that's a huge expense for us to pay. I believe for each site right now with the operations that we have, we're paying about $100,000 per year. So that's $400,000 for four locations beyond all the other costs associated. So it can get expensive. My hope is that, and we keep hearing about it, we've seen some, some of the testing and, and we've been testing it as well in our, um, in our area, are what's called drone in the box. Or there's some of the systems that are out there right now that uh, organizations are using that are autonomous. And so we're getting there, but we're not quite there because it's very different when you're dealing with flying over people and you're flying into areas where the drone was to drop out of the sky and harm people in our community. That could create tremendous challenges for us. So we're very, as I mentioned, the crawl phase. So to explain how these AI autonomous drones would work, it's essentially this box about the size of a truck bed that can either be mounted in like a police pickup truck or be stored on various rooftops around the city. And someone just needs to point at a place on a map and the drone will fly and pilot itself around obstacles and basically circle around an area to do surveillance. And you can call it back when you're done. This would require a whole bunch of drones to just be launching and being piloted by themselves. You wouldn't have to train random police officers to become FAA licensed pilots. And you could just have the whole thing in the box, like it's called a drone in the box. And these are only going to become more common and cheaper. Imagine having 10 of these throughout a city launching from like 10 different rooftops, being able to fly around by themselves, constantly going around communities, constantly going to GPS coordinates linked to 911 calls creating a whole wealth of footage instantly available to police, live-streamed from the air. Matt Sloan, the founder of Skyfire Consulting, a company here in Atlanta that trains law enforcement agencies on the use of drones and DFR programs, thinks that we'll start seeing autonomous deployment of police drones within the next year or two as police budgets increase and become allocated for unmanned aerial systems. He referred to the state of drone use by police as, quote, rapidly escalating. Chula Vista likes to market itself as a pioneer of the smart city movement, which consequently makes them able to receive a whole bunch of grant funding. <laughs> now, the idea of the smart city is built around having a massive amount of data to automate certain city services. So for this idea to work, there needs to be a way to collect that data. And these drones are a major part of that. The website for the city of Chula Vista also lists projects like electronic transportation, adaptive traffic signals, an app for non-emergency city services, as well as, quote, crime mapping and police dispatch modernization, unquote, as also being smart city initiatives. We have what's called 99111, and that allows my officers to hear incoming 911 calls before dispatch even puts it into the system they can hear what's going on there. And that is tremendously invaluable to them. Um, we have so many different layers of technology that have really showcased the value. Live 911 is a new piece of software that allows patrol officers to listen to live streamed 911 calls directly and pinpoints the location of the caller via GPS. Now, I don't even have time to get into the many reasons that this could be a bad idea, but simply put, Police do not need to respond to every call that goes into 911, let alone be giving random cops this ability to self-dispatch on their own. It just seems like that could have 
many, many consequences. But anyway, back to drones. According to a 2020 article in the newspaper La Prensa, cities in San Diego County, like Chula Vista, have received equipment such as tethered drones used for stationary surveillance, poll cameras, license plate readers, and cell phone cracking technology used to circumvent passwords from the Urban Area Security Initiative DHS grant program. A lot of these technologies have use in the smart city idyllic plan for data collection to automate city services. After the drone panel was over and I was walking around the show floor at CES, I couldn't help but notice all of the smart cameras and AI image recognition systems being advertised for law enforcement applications. Software that can almost instantaneously scan through a wealth of footage and track people's movements, run facial recognition, and identify every article of clothing. Versions of this type of software are already in use by many police departments, and they will only get better, cheaper, and more common. In effect, what this does is remove a lot of the detective legwork. Instead of having to manually map someone's movements and track down what niche Etsy shirt someone's wearing, these AI systems can now do this all automatically. To quote the MIT Tech Review article on CVPD's DFR drone program, quote, As the technology continues to spread, privacy and civil liberty groups are raising the question of what happens when drones are combined with license plate readers, networks of fixed cameras, and new real-time command centers that digest and sort through video evidence. This digital dragnet could dramatically expand surveillance capabilities and lead to even more police interactions with demographics that have historically suffered from over-policing." Pedro Rios, a human rights advocate with the American Friends Service Committee and a member of Chula Vista's Community Tech Council, was quoted in the MIT article saying, quote, People in the community have no awareness of what images are captured, how the footage is retained, and who has access. It's a big red flag for a city that says it's at the forefront of the smart city movement, unquote. These drones, they're revolutionizing the world. You, I mean, people who are not taking drones seriously right now will be left behind. We have flown 18,150 missions. You can go on our webpage. You can see the flight data. We're extremely transparent. We share all that with our community. We have nothing to hide. We are in the business of saving lives, and I believe drones are one of the best de-escalation tools. If they truly have nothing to hide and are extremely transparent about the use of their camera-mounted drones, I wonder why they've spent years in court fighting to keep every second of drone footage from being seen by the public. Luckily, after Chief Kennedy talked for like 30 minutes about how much they care about community engagement and how transparent they are with their flight data, I was able to ask the chief how their commitment to transparency relates to the recent lawsuit she just lost over hiding drone footage. And I also threw in a question about drones at protests. Let's take a listen. Yeah, a question for the chief. So I know you talked about the importance of like in, in, listening to the community and community engagement. And I'm not sure this is the case for your department, but other departments who've kind of followed suit, at, for, for your example, have been using drones to like surveil First Amendment activity stuff. Um, and, and I know you recently lost a, a court case regarding the availability of uh, drone footage. So I'm curious about um, kind of uh, what the rationale for, for, for that footage is and how that plays into this idea of trying to be transparent with the community for how these drones are being used. 
it's that's kind of be going to be a little bit difficult for me to answer because the court case is still uh, moving forward. It's an active case. Um, if you read it, we didn't lose the case. It was um, recommended go to a lower court to go back for some clarification under three categories. Now, this is either a straight up lie or a huge cope and a gross mischaracterization. Uh, but more on that in a sec. I think it's really important, as I mentioned, um, there are ethics involved and, and the ethical responsibility that you have as a law enforcement agency is super important. So how you utilize your drones and how you do outreach with your community is fundamentally important. And so um, we don't use our drones for, if there was a protest, we would not use our drones. If there was, if it turned into a riot, 100%. So if people were out there and they have the ability to, um, to speak freely, to share their concerns, and if it's in opposition, our goal is to make sure that we keep it safe for all parties involved on either side. So um, my hope is that other people look at it the same way that we do, and um, hopefully I've been able to answer it as much as I, believe me, I'm dying to, to give you more, but I can't, okay? Thank you for those questions. Um, folks, we're out of time. Maybe uh, there could be questions after the session. I so yeah, there were no more questions after mine. I kind of shut down that possibility. Anyway, okay. So first of all, the line between a protest and a riot is meaningless. Police can declare a riot for any reason they see fit, including people being in a road marching. I've seen this happen dozens of times, nearly hundreds of times, actually. Uh, so just moving on from that immediately. And let's go back to the court case. The city of Chula Vista did lose the argument that they were trying to make. They did lose the case. The 4th District Court of Appeals ruled that claiming exemption from the Public Records Act was unlawful and sent the case back to trial court to hammer out the details of how much footage is subject to public disclosure and figure out a process for standardizing the release of the footage. Now, the same day I attended this panel in Las Vegas, January 9th, the city of Chula Vista requested an appeal to the California Supreme Court to prevent the release of their aerial video footage. There is a 60-day waiting period where the high court will decide whether or not to take the case. And if they decline, finally it will go back to trial court to decide on the process of how selected drone footage shall be made publicly available. The police are now currently claiming that making DFR footage adhere to the Public Records Act would violate the privacy of Chula Vista residents captured in the videos, which perhaps demonstrates that the aerial videos should have never been captured in the first place. I'm going to read a press release from the city's communication manager. Quote, The city declined to provide the copies because doing so might have violated individual privacy rights. The city would have to manually review and redact every video recording to protect information considered personal, such as the images of faces, license plates, backyards, and more, unquote. So the city is both trying to argue that having to manually review each requested file to determine if the video in question is related to a pending investigation, as well as redacting personal information captured on camera, would be way too costly and time-consuming. City officials claim that reviewing and redacting videos from one month to obscure faces, license plates, and backyards would take a full-time employee around 230 days. 
I'm going to read a little bit more from the city's recent statement. Quote, while the city takes very seriously its obligation to provide the public access to public records, the city is concerned that the Court of Appeals opinion may compromise significant privacy concerns of members of the public in this case or in future requests, unquote. Somehow, the city is missing the point that this is, this is the very reason the drone footage is being requested, to learn the actual nature of this highly influential drone first responder program that's being adopted across the country. If the existence of this footage is such a massive privacy violation, that implies that the recording of said footage itself implicitly violates people's privacy. And the harder police fight to hide their sweeping collection of aerial footage, all the more suspicious this entire program seems. So that is what I have to say about Chula Vista's drone first responder program. In about a month and a half, the Supreme Court of California will make their decision on whether or not they're going to hear this case. If they decline, then the precedent will be set statewide against this exemption of the Public Records Act by hiding drone footage. So that will be really cool. And then hopefully within the next year, we'll finally be able to see what some of this footage actually looks like, how good their cameras are, how much they can zoom in, all of the details of how much of the city they're capturing, all this kind of stuff, how often the drones are in the air, all of those types of things that it will be uh, easier to highlight once we can actually take a look at the footage. And I assume that going through and re uh, releasing requested files from one month will probably end up not taking 230 days. But I do know how the police love to love to stretch out these public records uh, requests for as long as they can. As the request that this lawsuit stems from dates all the way back to April of 2021. So hopefully, hopefully more than three years later, we'll finally get a look. Special thanks to uh, Laprenza for starting this lawsuit and doing all of the hard work to actually force the police to be transparent. And if you want to read more, I recommend checking out the website to laprenza.org as well as the MIT Tech Review piece, which provided some really, really useful information to fill in the gaps between my own research. So yeah, thank you for listening to It Could Happen Here. It certainly could happen here in terms of seeing more of these little fuckers flying around in the air. Hey, we'll be back Monday with more episodes every week from now until the heat death of the universe. It Could Happen Here is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find sources for It Could Happen Here updated monthly at coolzonemedia.com slash sources. Thanks for listening. There's plenty to celebrate in March and ex Craft Month with the perfect pizza at home class from Craftsy. And anytime is right to listen to iHeartRadio's iHeartCountry Radio. Discover more shows and movies for free. This is Holly Fry from Stuff You Missed in History Class. 
The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV, like an adventure-ready RAV4. Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander. With seating for up to eight passengers and available panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with the whole family. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Ready to unlock a world of entertainment? Philips Roku TV has America's favorite TV streaming platform built in. So you can watch live TV, catch every game, discover must-see shows and hit movies, and get all the best streaming apps in one place, like iHeart, for all your favorite music, radio, and podcasts. Watch what you want, when you want. Immerse yourself in entertainment with premium 4K picture and sound for every budget, with sizes for every room. Find your perfect Philips Roku TV today, online or at your local Walmart and Sam's Club.